things that you are the most concerned about are the things that bother me the least. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, g- and, give me, give me, a, give me, a, give me a sense of that. What are the things that really stick in your craw? Well, I have a lot of tolerance for shenanigans on back to work because you know, whatever. <laughs> like it's not. It's usually about just uh, life things. Like that's no problem with that. It's not. It's not heavily into tech for the most part. Uh, and then when you do wander into tech on Roderick, you are wise enough, uh, cautious enough. I don't know. You you hang back and let Roderick make all the terrible, <laughs> terrible tech <laughs> mistakes. And so, if you get one or two things wrong, it's like nothing compared to like his five minute, you know, rant on computer maths. Miss, miss, <laughs> but yeah, and like I, I have to tell you that over the last year or so, it is you specifically <laughs> that I have in mind when he starts going off on, to, to use a, an old phrase, he goes off in some direction that's that's so wrong it's not even right, where, you know, it, it's along the lines of like, I guess in my head I think of it as like being mad at Comcast because you don't like this week's Game of Thrones. Where he's he's so he's <laughs> he's so delightfully far off base about like what what caused his frustration, and then and then he keeps talking about it and, and he keeps digging in and I'm I'm the last one I mean until recently I, I I won't even tell him like there's a setting for that like you could fix that. Well, it's not just that like one is like some things I know you know and it seems cruel for you to just sit there and just nod and and say yes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you know that you could you could help or correct or guide in some direction or another, so that. I used to find that frustrating. Now, sometimes I find it funny, but like he needs help. Some certain people need help and you like the whole thing. You're supposed to be helping people. Sometimes you're not helping John. You're right. You're right. I, I should probably be, I may, maybe we should have a, a post podcast discussion where I say, Hey, look, you know, but I feel like it's a little bit like, you know, a, I don't even want to say an old relative, but like a cantankerous old relative. We just mostly want to keep your hand away from their mouth. Like, but now you know, it's it's like it's messing up my uh, perceptions of what both of you are like. What do you expect it to know? Like, for instance, in the most I think it's the most recent episode, at one point, John starts talking about math and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Here it comes. Like he was going to he's he's setting himself up to say something about math. And I'm like, I just expecting him to casually you know do what he does with tech like go off in a totally different direction but i but he he more or less i think he understood that one it's like all right he understands math all right and then i'm thinking wait a second why doesn't he understand computers i hope he understands math i don't i don't know what to think anymore and you know and for for your stuff i think i have a, a grip on what you understand and what you don't and you're usually careful to put in a lot of disclaimers and waffle words when you get into the areas that you don't know so very rarely do you blunder into some area like a bull in the china shop and just wreck the place and then walk out and go yeah i did it right yeah i was yeah yeah i was thinking about that because in particular um you've given me some notes in the past when i've gotten new one of walter isaacson the history of apple products at one time or another and i i think about like i i you know one screwed up thing about getting older is realizing how much you thought you understood at one time and you actually didn't know or, or put differently it's almost like a different kind of puberty where you, I realize, I thought I knew so much more about Apple and Mac stuff, let's say in the mid nineties, than I actually did. And part of it is I just can't recall a lot of it. You know, like I, I had, but I, I had really good practical knowledge that fixed a lot of stuff. I was a, a typical power user. I read Mac user magazine and I knew stuff, but 
but you know, now that I have so many friends that have known this stuff and people like you that, that really know it, I realized how little I really understood about what any of those numbers on the machines meant and what, I mean, like everybody talking about like has Hasbro and, and broadband chips and stuff today. I'm just like, Hasbro? The toy maker? Isn't that what they're called? Isn't so that- you would have let that slide. You would have let John just say Hasbro and you just like, you'd publish the show like that. It's not, it's not going to fly here. Now, what would you do if you were in my situation? You've heard the show. You know what my role. You just to give a nice correction, like oh, has you don't have to be like snarky like I just was, but you know, the, you just say yeah. Haswell. It's called Haswell. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, you think I, you think I should do that? You think you don't think that would that would kind of screw things up if I if I started correcting him? I don't know. Like I mean, I it, like you said, it doesn't have to be in the moment. Just write it down on a card somewhere, like at the end of the show. Okay, all right, it's Hasbro, not Haswell. Uh, you pronounce Jamiroquai differently than you did on the show. Like, just yeah, just write this stuff down. <laughs> I forget how he did it. It was like, Jim, yeah, but he, he, Jim, Jim Aroquai. He says rendezvous when he means yeah. rendezvous. Yeah, but yeah. but he says he says Jamiroquai like he's like he's swallowing swallowing some home fries. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. Um, I was thinking about what we could talk about on here. And, you know, I, I think I think we probably agree, like, there's not a problem figuring out what to talk about. It's more like, you know, what do we focus on? But uh, I, I sent you, an, I don't know if you got it, I sent you an email a little bit ago where I was realizing that so much of our, our implicit questions come down to, how did you get like this? Like, when I when I hear you and I, I see the layers of the onions, onion being peeled away and I feel like I, I feel like I get you. And then I go... Oh my God! And you you never stop surprising me, and I and I find myself going, how did how did you get like this? I mean, and I have to assume on some level that's somewhat what you wonder about me. Yeah, no origin stories because we all know our own origin stories, right. and you typically don't want like we both of us do like oh it's boring you don't want to hear about it because we know our own stories we were there so it is boring to us but other people might not know and like the other the other idea I had was that rather than corrections there's a lot of things that. We, we're both into our own like stuff, right? But there are a lot of things that I'm into that you just have no. That's not even on your map, and vice versa. I didn't even. I didn't even know what all to write down. I have anime. I have Destiny. I have many, many, many video game things. I don't want to make you talk about video games if you. Yeah, well, boring. no. That's what I was thinking of. Is like video games is just a gigantic black hole in your like. There's nothing there in your life as far except for like threes. It's inexcusable as somebody who who likes to consider himself a more or less up to date evolving person. I was like, I woke up one day and after years of hearing Andy Bayo talk about bleep bloop music and stuff, I woke up one day and I went, wow, a video games are a thing. They are really a thing. And I've been joking about them because I think they're silly because I haven't played them. But B, arguably then the more important consequence is like, there's just this whole way of understanding modern life that I don't have access to because I haven't played video games, which, which at a certain time would have sounded ridiculous to me. But now, I mean, understanding so much, not just about pop culture references, not like Casey List jokes, but like the, the kinds of things where like, you know, setting aside the gamification of this and that, but just that like what a profound effect the playing and thinking about video games has had on the way the culture operates. And I realized I woke up and went, oh, I'm so out of it. I feel like I just, I've ripped Van Winkle or something. Yeah. And on the flip side, you might think it's like, oh, isn't it comic books or whatever? Because I'm not into comic books but like i've read comic books some of them you know at your suggestion like i feel like i feel like comic books are not a black hole in my life it's just a genre that i'm not particularly into but having purchased a whole bunch on comicsology and having a comicsology and having read several you know series like you know i still think it's not for me but it's not like i don't understand what the thing is Mm -hmm. right and that that's why i feel like video games are for you although you know your daughter is dragging you 
kicking and screaming into this world, sort of. But yeah, and and from I think on on your side, the thing is the thing that I don't get is pretty much almost anything having to do with music. That's why when really? you start talk when you start talking about music, like I do have I have my musical things that I like. But you were like, weren't you like obsessed with you too? Yes, but like it's it's so narrow. Like like I said, you're making fun of you and the Canadian bands that you make up. Like just you you go through bands and you rattle them off as if they're as if you're just naming one of the fifty states, and it's just like band after band after band. And I was like, these have to be made up. Like this is ridiculous. I've never even heard of bands whose names sound remotely likely, let alone <laughs> you and John. Oh, this yeah, don't, everyone knows that song. What are you talking about? I don't even know this band. I don't know who these people are. I don't know what decade they're in. I don't know what kind right. of music they are. I don't even know what that genre is called. I don't know even what you're talking about. So and live music like which i've you know never been into so i feel like that is a a large hole in my life and it's it's definitely more difficult to sort of convey because anime is a genre right and uh and video games are like a uh, you know well i don't know is anime a genre or medium either way they're super broad whereas Mm -hmm. music like specifically the kind of music you're into i don't know and then i guess drugs like if you want to explain to me how drugs work This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Hover.com. Hover is quite simply the best way to buy and manage domain names. Hover gives you exactly what you need to find the perfect domain for your new idea, and then they take all the hassle and confusion out of getting that name registered, simply, safely, securely, and privately. Hover has all the top-level domains you've come to expect, all the great TLDs, including classics like .com, .co, .net, and .me, but they also have those new TLDs that you've been hearing about. Yes, .plumbing, .sexy, .coffee. And I will tell you, because I know you're asking, you can even buy domains ending in .horse. You're welcome. At Hover, there's no mystery meat upsells or creepy add-ons. You get a smart control panel, plus who is privacy is always added to every domain that supports it. That's pretty cool. Getting that for free? Woo! Hover even offers a free valet transfer service so you can skip the hassle of trying to move your domains over from where they're currently registered. And believe me, my friends, some of those registrars just love to make that as difficult as they can. High five. Am I right? All you need to know is that Hover takes your work and your business seriously, and it shows. If you ever need a hand, Hover has the best customer support around, highlighted by their beloved no-wait, no-hold, no-transfer phone service. You call them a real, live, actual, sentient human being will be on the line to help you out. So if you're in the market for some sweet new domains or you're ready to move your current domains to a place that treats you like a grown person, please try Hover. You can get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for our program by going to Hover.com and using the special code CORRECTIONS at checkout. CORRECTIONS. Our thanks to Hover for making pretty much everything about domain names a breeze and for supporting reconcilable differences. There's this thing, though, in the middle of what we're talking about, though, that I, 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 th- I think that I, I, I still find so interesting, which is, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, it's really hard to know. It's hard to draw conclusions about the population because all we really have is our own experience. But I'm, I'm all, I still am amazed at what a difference in 30 years, what a difference 30 years can make. 30 years plus uh, theoretically unlimited access to stuff where it's, it's so interesting to me that... I mean, just look at television in the 70s and 80s, where you could have a show that, you know, 10 million people watched. And, you know, even if you'd never, even if you weren't a, a regular viewer of Barney Miller, you were certainly aware of Barney Miller. You knew what it was. You might even know the names of some of the actors. If you saw them on a talk show, you go, oh, that's that guy from Barney Miller. 
you would know, you know, you might even know like that it's on ABC or it's on at 9:30 because it was there wasn't that much out there in the mainstream anyway, right? It, it, the access that the typical person had even with cable TV was not that huge. And so, you know, the kind of references that we all had were I, I don't know, it seemed maybe just cuz I'm, you know, from like small town culture, you know, that those were all pretty small. And now today it's just it's so not unusual to like open open a door, find ten million people in there, and they're they're interested in this thing that you've never heard of, and don't never even like I don't know what on fleek means. I heard that <laughs> on Saturday Night Live this weekend. I don't know what that means. Everybody says it. I don't know what it means. You don't need to know. But I don't know. I don't know if you take the point. But it seems like you, for example, you you used to be pretty heavily involved in stuff like Usenet. Uh, culture, right? So, I mean, the actual, the original reason for Usenet. You used to do a lot of stuff with uh, news groups and participating in stuff, right? Yeah, we liked it because it was all we had, as the saying goes. Right. But that, you know, even back then, I remember, if, you see, you probably didn't need these books, but like when I first got on the web, back when it was just the internet, I remember buying these books and it always felt like the last third to fifth of the book was just like dozens or hundreds of pages of just the names of news groups. And you just look down there and it was like, it just seemed, it seemed completely perplexing that there were all these different little subcultures and all these different groups. Like, why do we have all these different groups about the, about money Python or whatever? But it was an interesting snapshot of all these little uh, silos of entertainment and culture that anyway, but, um, but you would, you, you did pretty deep dives on everything you were interested in. I mean, you really, you went all the way in on a lot of stuff when you were younger. You too, yeah. Apple. You mentioned Barney Miller before, and that's actually a good example. Um, well, let me think of some other ones. Barney Miller, uh, Scott, you'll, you'll be able to name it better than I do, but I hated Barney Miller. I hated it with a fiery passion. Because really? Because it was so boring to me. I was too young for it. Oh, okay, sure. I, it, was, it was so boring. It was pretty dry. It was pretty dry for a kid. And you know why I hated it? I was angry when it was on because that was it. Like it, when it was on, it was taking up the channel, one of the four channels that you, you right. got, you know, right? And that it made me so angry when it showed. And, and it's like, why did you watch it? I've probably seen dozens of episodes of Barney. Why did you? Because because that's all there was. Like I didn't have a computer. We had the TV. There was only a couple channels. It was like news on the other channels, which was even worse. So I watched a lot of Barney Miller, and I, I was just angry about all the shows that I. Like, I, I don't know why I was... Even, like, Gilligan's Island. Like, I didn't like Gilligan's Island, but it's like, but this is what's on, right? right? And so I was the type of person where as soon as I could find something... You know, if, if you diversified it, like, you gave me Usenet, like, wow, look at all these news groups. I was like, oh, God, thank God, finally, I don't have to watch Barney. But like, give me some other examples of shows. I'll tell you how much I hated them. Like, the, the, the boring shows that were probably slightly too, like, sophisticated for me when I was uh, a young kid. When were you born, like, mid, mid-70s? yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you my, my analog for that. And I, I, I just totally know what you're talking about. I felt exactly the same way. And Gilligan's Island, again, is a perfect example. K- kids of my age and maybe kids of your age, like, did I like watching Dennis the Menace? Like, Dennis the Menace was not a good TV show, but it was on. I mean, it would you'd be sprinkled along. I'm thinking about the afternoons on our UHF station, you know, and it was it was always it was there was kind of a pattern to it. You know, I jumping in at like one o'clock, you had the one o'clock movie that ran till three. You might have the three stooges. Uh, you got Popeye. You got some cartoons. And then that moves into the like you get the Flintstones. Right. You get Gilligan's Island. You get that kind of stuff. But you're absolutely that, that that's what was on. I mean, it was really more like the closest example I can think of is being on a plane today or being on a plane 10 years ago. 
like pre Jet Blue, where like if the movie came on on a plane, if you were on a you're on a plane, you get on a plane and they go, oh by the way, there's going to be a movie. You're like, oh my god, there's going to be a movie on the plane. It's like I've only ever seen this. I've only ever seen this in films. I didn't know I'm, I get to watch a movie. It doesn't matter what it is. You're going to watch it. Because what are you going to do? You're going to stare at your seat. Like you're you're going to watch the movie. But for me. I, I agree with you about those shows. For me, it was like this hour-long dramas at like nine and ten, like the dynasties and sometimes the Dallases. They were just so boring to me. I was like, you know, can't you just show like more Happy Days or something like that? <laughs> happy Days is another example, but yeah, like <laughs> you made a Chuck Cunningham reference. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I liked it a little bit, I guess. But like, if you're the type of person who doesn't feel like who has who has like potentially deep passions about things but they are not being served by the, the any culture that you can see anywhere like we are the people who rush to the internet because now you're like finally it's a green field and anyone can make any news group uh and there are news groups about the most obscure thing ever i don't have to watch barney miller anymore i can go directly to the one group that's talking specifically about the thing that i care about and the people who are there care about that this is you know early days before before spam before you know trolling before you know the, the dawning of flame wars right mm-hmm. um so that definitely feeds into my personality type and saved me from all of the not like anger like you know but like dissatisfaction mm-hmm. with like that the, the the world was not serving my needs like i've talked on past shows about like i didn't i was upset with the toys that i could get because they never looked like the things on the television shows or in the movies or where they were poorly constructed. And it's like, you just so desperately wanted to have something that looked like the, the thing that was on TV and they'd give you this piece of crap that looked nothing like it. And it's like, nobody, nobody is, uh, serving my needs here. Certainly. And you know, it, it's just the whole sort of outsider. Don't feel like you fit in blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Even entertainment seemed like it was made for somebody else, whether it was older people or people interested in different things than you are. So it had to, it had to meet the needs of such a broad audience it's been funny for me having a kid and trying to find more movies that we, good movies that we can enjoy together. And it's really funny, the disappearance of PG, for example. And first of all, the kind of stretches on PG, what's now considered PG from the 80s, kind of blows my mind sometimes. But, but you know, in that case, you know, there was a, you had, there was no such, there was, the only thing you had was like the mass market. That's, you know what I mean? I don't think you had this artsy, way artsy stuff over here or very specialized stuff over here. But then, I mean, I, there was a, what do they call it, like a four-quadrant film. I mean, I think that's mostly what came out until arguably the age of mature cable and DVD. But the other thing is, like, and what you're describing uh, is that if you, I think one way we, we, one thing we might maybe have a little bit in common is, like, once you get interested in something, I'll speak for myself, once I would get interested in something, I'd go, ooh, this is kind of cool. And I start prodding around in a way that I maybe even didn't understand, but I start prodding around and going like, is there like a surpassingly large number of things to learn about this? Yes. Dungeons and Dragons has many things to learn about it. This BBS has tons of different rooms in it. This gopher hole is bottomless. And I think there's something incredibly sticky about finding an interest in something, right? Something that initially gets you there, like it's a free software or Simpsons or something. You know what I mean? Something gets you in there and you go like, is there like an, like an exhaustive amount of mastery to be had here and like lots of little things to explore? I, that, that was crack for me. I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like we start digging in, that's it's a, that's an encyclopedia nerd kind of thing. We are like, yes, more, more, more. Like I want to, I, I cannot get enough information about this topic. So did you feel, this is getting back to origin story thing, did you feel that like 
how how much of an outsider did you feel like right your childhood basically like how how isolated how because like this is this is another you know comparison for looking from the outside like it's not hard to predict that i you know felt like a outsider loner nerd blah 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 blah. but looking at all of your you know everything you've revealed about your early years on your various podcasts and all the different pictures of you or whatever uh you look like a fairly normal athletic handsome popular guy who liked rock and roll music and was in bands and girls talked to him and stuff like that and yet i i'm the question remains did you feel like average run-of-the-mill all-american uh golly gee whiz kid or did you feel like the totally disaffected outsider that nobody understood when i was like a kid kid and i can separate my young childhood i mean not to be morose but i can separate my young childhood into the time before and after my dad died and I, i mean i was i was a pretty happy little kid i mean you know it was great i mean i had a really great childhood um, and then, you know, after my dad died, I was pretty sad a lot of the time, but I didn't feel like, I don't think I felt like that much of an outsider. Uh, like anybody, I guess. Once I got to junior high age, really even, I mean, you know what, I'm going to say starting in fifth or sixth grade, I think I got that feeling everybody had, which is I am so weird. I, and I, I am so underdeveloped. I am so not even playing I'm not not even, I'm not even, not in the same league. I'm not in the same sport as the rest of these people. Like I don't, you know. So, but the thing is, I have to say, like at the time, you, you know, all that kind of pain is so intensely personal and feels unique. It feels like you are having this. This is the downside of being a teenager is you don't have that way to step back and go, oh my god, every popular kid is even more scared than I am because they've got something to lose. But did you pass through that? Did you get into, you eventually get into high school and you realize I'm a normal person. I have friends. I, I involve, I'm involved in activities. People talk to me. I go to parties. That's, that's what I was going to say is that like, you know, I, in my own history that I like to write for myself, I was alone in a rebel dotty. Like I, I thought I was a real outsider kind of guy. Um, and it wasn't really until after college that I realized that, you know, like for example, I was never really bullied. Um, and I think maybe, you know, I think through a variety of things, why do you decide to be a funny guy in life? Like I was the class clown in high school and like that, you know, that comes from a certain amount of like wanting to put up walls and barriers and find a way to fit in, in a place where you don't fit in. Right. It's the classic story of why somebody gets into comedy. Uh, but I mean, the thing I'm trying to get at, and I want to hear your story, but, but the, I, I like to think of myself as having been this guy who doesn't fit in and was like the James Dean guy. But the truth is, like, uh, I was still really mean to people a lot. I was still really snarky. I was still, and, you know, now with the full light of history, I look at how I behaved, and it was pretty execrable a lot of the time. I mean, I was a kid. I, was a, I mean, I don't think I was anywhere near as bad as some kids, but that's no excuse. I still was scared and nervous and anxious a lot of the time. But I, I brought, I probably, like Molly Ringwald, brought a lot of that on myself. Like, but to be honest, no, I don't, I don't think I was ever, I was never like the picked on kid. I was never, I was never the categorically like the poor kid or the dirty kid or the black kid. I was never the person who was actually singled out in class. And I didn't really understand how lucky I was or how not bad it was until I was probably in my late twenties. Yeah. So the reason I bring that up is because all these things you're talking about of like getting deeply into something and finding a topic that there's a lot to know about and leafing through encyclopedias is there's a personality type that goes with that, but there's also situational things. If nothing else is working in your life, mm-hmm. if, like you said, if you are uh, the poor kid or the dirty kid or the kid that everyone picks on or the really ugly kid or whatever, uh, 
those things that you find to get into, uh, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, uh, a particular author or computers or whatever, take on much greater importance. Like they, you hang on to them for dear life because that is literally all you have, or at least you, all you feel like you have. And of course, depending on what those things are, they just make your other situations worse. You know, so if you're super into Dungeons and Dragons, that is not going to help your rep at school for the most part. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or, or computers or anything like that. Um, but it's interesting to see that like, like in the, the classic freaks and geeks episode where, uh, uh, Frank, James Franco joins Dungeons and Dragons game that it's not, it's not a prerequisite for you to be a, an outsider or have sort of all sorts of life problems or social difficulties for you to get deeply into something because those things are enjoyable to people who have that kind of personality and that type of personality is not confined to people who, you know, have difficult childhoods or are not popular or whatever. There's a little bit of a stigma barrier there of crossing over between groups or whatever, but you know, they, like that you could that you could be fascinated by Dungeons and Dragons, but also be the one who you know who goes on dates with people and who is who picks on people instead of being the one who is picked on, seems uh, surprising or out of whack. In you know if you just go by the stereotypes and the stories, but I think it's more common than especially these days. I mean I don't know what it's like to be a kid now, but everything I see is like oh being a nerd is cool blah blah blah. When I when I see that. What I think is that all that means is that the cool people have learned it's okay to do nerdy things. Well, also, that's a, it's a sliding scale, too, though, because, I mean, <clears throat> what we're talking about, in that case, not, not to parse words, but it's okay to be into stuff that was formerly perceived by most people as being outsider geeky nerd, nerd things. But the thing is now, there's probably stuff that still has that same amount of stigma. It's just that it's not about Lord of the Rings. But it's not it's not the stuff that have the stigma. It's can you talk to other people and look them in the eye? Can you be hold a social conversation with somebody without being a jerk? Like, you know, do do you understand personal hygiene? Are you, you know, can you remotely comb your hair or get your clothes together? Like, like follow follow body language, the kinds of things where like the sensitivity to like where you almost feel like you're on the spectrum or something where you're like, you go, why can't I get along with people? You're like, well, you know, you talk really loud and near somebody's face. And you're like, I had no idea that I do that. You know, that that kind of thing. Or, or like, you know, you're just, uh, uh, you know, if my my main problem, I had many problems as a kid, but like a lot of it is like early on, if you start feeling yourself be an other, uh, one of the defense mechanisms is to, is to, you know, get fresh with people and like, you know, always have the snappy comeback. And if you were the type of person who's getting picked on, having the snappy comeback is not actually particularly helpful, even though you think it makes you feel better. And eventually you just become this horrible spiky shell that anyone who comes near just gets, you know, well, they get what's coming to them, which is an insult. It's a, it's a self-perpetuating cycle, you know, like, well, are you, are you describing how you felt? Um, yeah, to some degree, like it, only in retrospect, it's like, you know, like you said, you don't realize this until years, years later, mm -hmm. you realize in retrospect, a lot of my problems were of my own doing because I was a jerk to people and I was a jerk to people because I had already decided that they were going to be a jerk to me and I was going to get back at them first or whatever. It's like, and like, I feel bad for the people who were picked on helplessly. Like most of the reason I was picked on and bullied is, is that I would verbally at least give back to the bullies as good as I got and it would enrage them, <laughs> beat the crap out of me. It's like, right. well, you kind of did that to yourself there. Uh, not that it really excuses it, but it's like, that, that yeah that's 
Yeah, and you don't realize that until years and years later. But 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 for for kid culture today, it's like, oh, okay, well, there's no stigma attached to being into computers or Dungeons and Dragons. But if you somehow form into the type of person that no one wants to be friends with, doesn't matter what you're into. You're gonna be you're gonna be an outsider anyway. Right. Well, yeah, and <clears throat> that's why I'm not. I don't mean to split hairs, but like when you think about something like, um, like Star Wars. I'm trying to think of good examples of this. But I, I mean, to me, there, there is a distinction. And I guess you're already kind of saying this. But there's the kinds of things like you're into something that is very maybe on the one hand, maybe sort of conventional, mainstream. And, and like that's a cool that's an OK thing to like or a cool thing to like versus something that's a weird thing to like. And so to me, there's this one axis, which is all the topics. And there's another axis, which is like how into it you are. Right. <clears throat> so, for example, it was never cool to be like in Future Farmers of America, not in a mainstream way, right? There's, in, in, you know, or AV Club. There's these various kinds of things that were, that were not a cool thing to be in. You could have a lot of fun. Like I was in band. I wasn't in marching band, but I was in stage band. But the kids in band were nerds, but you could also, you had to admire like what a fun, weird group the band kids were because they obviously all really enjoyed doing it. But do you know what I mean though? There's the distinction. You got the axis of the topics and then you got the axis of like how far into this are you? And so that's the thing is like, so on the one hand, like to be a little bit into farming (laughs) and not make a big deal about it or like be really into animal husbandry, like that's fine, right? But to be like completely obsessed with that where the only thing that you would talk about is like how to make cows have sex or whatever, like that's going to make you an outsider. And so that to me, when we we talk about the, the hard part today is when we talk about geeky and nerdy stuff, I have a hard time with that because, well, Minecraft is extremely popular. Most little most little boys and a lot of the little girls in my kids' class play it. It's kind of de rigueur. You're kind of expected to like play and know what you have to know what creepers are. My daughter's constantly explaining things to me that she's just learned from other people at school. So in that case, you can be extremely into Minecraft, which is a quote unquote geeky thing, but it's really not. It's just a thing now. You know what I mean? It, it isn't. Do, do, do you see that distinction? Uh, I don't know if there is actually a topic axis, and this is again with the benefit of hindsight. I don't know if there was any. Uh, even though I just said that, like you know, being into computers or D and D didn't help, I it, I feel like if the if you are one of the popular cool people, you could be into any of those things and it was fine. And the reason it, things end up getting stigmatized is because it seems like the only people who do them or do them, like you said, obsessively, are the people who have nothing else, mm-hmm. right? And so because the band people. They may be into band, but here's band had a lot going for it over D and D. First of all, band was a school sanctioned activity, right? So it was, you know, it was a thing that happened at school. Some subset of the class was into it. Band, uh, the rest of the school got to see band do something at various points. They would have school assemblies. You'd see the band performing. You'd be like, oh, all those people going to band every day, they're actually learning how to do this, and this is actually vaguely impressive, right? Band had girls and boys together in it, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe not as you know as much as theater, let's say, but you know. It, it, no, there was that factor. It was a little bit like a Unitarian church, but by by, uh, by senior year, right? And and all these things do not, you know, like if you had the choice, if you like D and D and you like band, you were going to tie your social circle and everything else to your band experience because it's just an overall richer experience. But if you don't have band and you have trouble making friends and you're a a big, terrible spiky shell that no one wants to go near and you're just a general miserable, ugly person, uh, D and D with the other miserable, ugly people (laughs) 
doesn't is not demonstrably like it doesn't increase your social standing because no one sees it as a thing that you can show off and do there there are often no girls involved depending on the group you're in or no boys involved if you're off with the girls being into whatever the ostracized girls were into um and it it's like is it the activity that's bad not really because if we're if the band people got together on the weekends to play dnd we would never know about it but we become known as the D and D kids, and you just you just invest everything you have into that one activity, and you gain some mastery in it, and that mastery is meaningless to everybody else, and you seem weird not because you're super into D and D, but because you're not into anything else. You don't do many sports, you don't do band, you're in the weird nerd classes, right? Yeah, I I don't know. Like it'll be interesting. Like my hindsight view, obviously, of childhood is so different than the experience of being in it, and now the forward looking view of how my kids go, like I'm just, I you know. I've said before that we should. It's going to be difficult for us yeah. not to turn this into a show entirely about yeah. our kids. But anyway, I'm always passively terrified for my kids' future just because I know what my childhood was like. And then I say, like, you know, their childhood's not going to be like yours. It will be theirs, and it will be different. But I'm always on the lookout for any warning signs. Like, I know. Are they going down the same path that I went down? Right? Because and you know, I don't know. That's I feel I feel terrible when I do that too because one of my deals I made with myself that I break three times a week is to not to the extent possible, not pass my anxieties on to my kid where like, I want her to feel free to become screwed up in her own way, which is so much harder than I expected because when someone like, if she's in like a fire, you know, she's pretty social. I think she's very well liked and admired. Like, you know, lots of people say hi when we're walking around like kids of all ages, but you know, whatever, if I, if I arrive there to pick her up and I get there early and she's sitting kind of by herself, you know, the thing is, what's she really doing? Well, she's sitting by herself. She might just want a few minutes to herself. But, you know, you can guess how I feel. Immediately, my mind is racing. I'm like, did something happen? Is she like this every day? Are the teachers watching this? Is something going on? But, you know, and of course, that doesn't help at all. Because I'm, I'm just overreacting to something that I noticed. And I honestly think she just likes to go by the end of the day. She's been there for six hours and she wants to just sit by herself and, you know, not, not be in some kind of jostling physical thing like her dad you know what i mean though like that's that to me is like i, I feel a, a meta anxiety about passing my hang-ups on to her in a way that's unnecessary and unuseful well the bottom line is what can you even do about it like say that was the case it's like what do you, you can't you know what are you gonna what are you gonna do about it yeah, well that's the problem and <laughs> just because you can't do something about it doesn't mean people won't try there's a lot of you know pure silliness that goes on in a school every day i could sit you know i could sit there and give her the voir dire on how her day went like what happened? Did somebody say something? Did, did did you did you you know? Did somebody hurt you? Did <laughs> you know what I mean? I could do that, but now I'm just that's a that's an anxiety machine. You know what I mean? Because you know I, I obsess a little bit over. Sh- she's not, and we're not gonna talk about kids all the time. But uh, she's not a talker about her feelings. She does not like talking about feelings. She just she doesn't like straight talk. It feels I think it reads as punishment, and I'm in trouble. When I'm like, well, how'd it, how, how'd it go? Well, what happened? I think she really feels like I'm giving her the third degree and it makes her, but I, I'm terrified because I'm like, if I can't have this conversation when she's seven, what's going to happen when she's 12? Exactly. Like it's a st- all those stupid parenting movies in the eighties were like, oh, if you talk to your kids and when they're teenagers, they'll confide in you. You're like, are you kidding me? I think back to what did I tell my parents? I told them nothing. <laughs> and they got nothing from me. They could have like, they could have waterboarded me and I wouldn't <laughs> tell them from the first thing about my day. And it's like, really? Oh, yeah, no, they. I told my parents nothing, and 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 was angry at them for like not helping me in my life while I told them nothing. But they they didn't know that you were not in a good place, or 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 they didn't know they didn't know why. Uh, well, here's the thing: by not talking to them, I don't know how much they knew. All wow. I know is that there was like, uh, you know, 
I they were not providing help, and I was not telling them that there was a reason they should provide help, right? Which is, you know, it sounds dramatic, but like in hindsight, it's my own like it's my own stupid fault. If you never tell them like anything, if you just go, you know, everything's fine. Like as long as you like continue to attend school, stay healthy, you got good grades, right? And have like one or two friends that you talk to. Like I, I just you know, it's the helicopter parenting thing. Like, did my parents care how many friends I had and what those friends were like? Not to the degree that i do the, today or the, the parents do today like you want your mm-hmm. kids to have a well-rounded group of friends who are good people who they're friendly with it's like like you just said on a previous but like expecting your kid to have like adult level relationships when they're like six years old you know like where they're all courteous to each other and they're nice and considerate of each other's feelings like they're six-year-olds they're gonna be little animals you know but you're like oh you know just i hope they have healthy relationships you, you want them to have healthier relationships with their six-year-old friends than you have with your adult <laughs> friends which is unrealistic right you're totally right <laughs> yeah you're, you're totally right and it's but at the same time like i look at my kids school and like this might be a San Francisco thing, but I think it's kind of a modern thing. It is so much more civilized than my elementary school. I mean, you just you don't see kids just beating up other kids. Oh yeah, they don't have roving pack of bullies beating the crap out of people <laughs> while while teachers smoke in the lounge. <laughs> don't pay any attention, you know. But am I? I mean, am I remembering that wrong? I feel like my oh, junior yeah. high was nothing but dark corridors. Un unmonitored corridors, just b- b- and then with the creepers coming out at night. <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't. It might just be like a, a, a class thing or whatever. Someone who is much younger than both of us. I think she's in her twenties. Recently tweeted that uh, she remembers going to her guidance counselor uh, when she was involved in bullying. She was bullied by a, a bunch of people. She was like the weird goth girl, right? Mm-hmm. And they had the bullies apologize to her for you know the guidance counselor had the bullies apologize to her for being for you know which. Right away, like, you know how well this is going to go mm-hmm. in terms of, like, you know, they're apologizing to you at the same time they're planning their revenge, right? And then the guidance counselor had her apologize to the to the bullies for being creepy. Are you kidding? <laughs> and this is like, all right, so this is, in you know, this is a 20-year-old, right? So this is not ancient history. So right. this can still go horribly wrong, but, uh, you know, that's the type of, I remember being in a similar situation where I'd get bullied and I, you know, we'd be all be down at like the assistant principal's office or whatever. And the assistant principal's it was, it was like no fault insurance. It's like, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> there's a physical altercation. Everyone involved is equally at fault. Disperse. And it's like, you do not understand the dynamic going on here, sir. There are predators and there is prey. And there's a big difference, you know. Right. The, the chicken shouldn't have to apologize to the wolf. <laughs> right. I'm sorry for hurting your fist with my face. <laughs> I, I, you're to- I, I totally uh, I remember this and agree with you. And I don't know, because um, I was kind of, a, I was a wuss. I was a mama's boy um, a lot of my childhood, and I, I never got in fights. I just would do anything to avoid conflict. N- I just was so scared of getting in trouble at school. But but I also, I felt, I think one reason I was like that was that there was a message being telegraphed. I don't know, this could be Monday morning quarterbacking. But like in that case, when you would go into that office and you deal with the principal, especially if it's a guy or deal with, d- didn't you feel like they despised you a little bit? Like oh yeah no they hate they hated you for being a wimpy boy that was totally the macho because it was always like this big burly guy if you weren't if you weren't such a pussy we wouldn't be standing here yeah right exactly now. like what's your problem exactly like, why are you letting yeah. these guys beat you up you obviously did something and in a lot of cases they were right that I was I was provoking them provoking them with the one thing I had which was you know sarcastic comments and insults being alive. <laughs> <laughs> and and insulting them like I would right. you know my one act of rebellion was I wouldn't take their crap and I would throw the insults back and that did not have a positive effect on my oh, my physical well being and this is in this is back in New York right yeah mm-hmm. 
And and you know, in the grand scheme of things, like I had people had it way worse. People continue to have it way worse. Everyone feels like theirs is bad or whatever. But like you just you know, what I get back to is looking at like what was your social skill set. Like mm-hmm. my social skill set still sucks, and I'm you know a grown man, right? But when I was a kid, there was nothing. Like I had, I had no tools to relate to other people in a reasonable fashion, and didn't realize that fact. See, I. I don't get that right now from you in any form or fashion. You're one of the best listeners I know and your mind operates, you know, very quickly. And I I feel like you flip through some kind of array of 50 things you could say every time you say something and you seem to be really good at picking out the most appropriate thing. Is that just practice? Like you don't seem like a sociopath. It's kind of like, I don't don't know if you've hadn't read a lot of fantasy books, but anyway, this, this would be like a trope in a fantasy book. Like I'm, I live my life like, you know, the way you do when you're a teenager and you're a kid and you're centered on yourself and you're thinking about yourself and generally unaware of how things are actually going down, but just sort of, you know, fumbling through your life as best you can. And then as I've gotten older and as my brain finally like settled into the correct shape, or like, what do they say? Your brain stops form. Your brain finally fully forms at like 25 or something. I think like some 25. Ri- some ridiculous future age. It just seems cruel that it's like, seriously, right. the whole rest of it, you're just a crazy person. It's like, uh-huh. Yep. Sorry. Uh, and it's the worst kind of crazy because you could be incredibly confident. Like apparently, not to interrupt you, but like I just read this thing recently. I think in the New York Times, but that like the the, the forebrain, like the the part that does a lot of the thinking. Like you can think really, really well, but your impulse control is completely off. So it's super ridiculously out of kilter. Where like you you are way smart enough to know better in this part of your brain up, up front but this part in the middle like you're going to follow your emotion and just hit that accelerator before you even realize it and the horror aspect of this is that 25 you know late 20s early 30s like for that part of my life slowly the the, the past part of your life your childhood you start to be able to look at it as it actually was and it's terrifying you're like holy cow i had no idea that i was doing the, you know like you don't you finally it's like the part in the movie where they show you the same scenes but like what was really happening in those scenes it's right? like the the sixth sixth sense where in my case i go like oh my god there's so many and when you watch the flashback and you know you finally notice the pattern of all the colors and you go oh I should have died a whole bunch of times or, or, you know what I mean? No, just like, just, uh, you know, how many things were my fault? How many things were so avoidable, right? How many, how many things were, were because I hadn't had things figured out, right? Like being, you know, self-awareness, are you aware of your own like foibles and weird things or whatever? And are you aware of them in the moment? All right. And so as I've gotten older, I've gotten much, much better at realizing all the, all the things that are wrong with me. Uh, and the time gap, is smaller now so now pretty much almost sometimes like after i've said something i realized it was stupid which is it's too late then too but at least it's better than 30 years later this episode of reconcilable differences is sponsored in part by slack the messaging app for teams slack consolidates all your work communications into one place makes them organized instantly searchable and available on any device so teams never have to worry about losing another conversation. Also, I will tell you a secret. Slack is super fun to use. It really is. I love this thing. Slack easily integrates with all the tools and services you already use. Stuff like Google Drive and Hangouts, Dropbox, GitHub, Stripe, Trello, Asana, Jira, MailChimp, geez Louise, you name it, it's all in there. So that means you have just one beautiful place to go to keep up with everything that's happening on your team and in your world. What's great is that Slack also makes all your stuff searchable. So every discussion, every decision, every document is archived, indexed, and available through a single search box. 
Slack is used by over 500,000 people and more than 60,000 teams every day. That includes companies like the New York Times, eBay, Adobe, and even the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory, who use Slack all the way down at the South Pole. That's the pole where the penguins live. Now, here's the really cool part. Slack is free to use for as long as you want with as many users as you want, and it's super easy to get started using Slack today. Just go visit slack.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. And when you sign up for your free account from that page, you'll also receive $100 American in credit to use if and when you decide to upgrade to many of the fantastic features of Slack's paid plans. Many more integrations there. Please get started with Slack today by signing up at slack.com slash diffs. Many thanks to Slack, the messaging app for teams, for taking some of the pain out of staying connected and for supporting reconcilable differences. Back back to the internet thing. So you got so you got a Mac, your family. I still can't believe this. I can't believe you had a Mac in your house in 1984. Is that right? I did. Whew. That must have been... So you were around 10? Yeah, 9 when we got it. Oh, my God. Because my birthday's late in the year. That's... I, I can't even imagine. H- had you done anything computer-y before that? Yeah, so I had my, my VIC-20. I was definitely oh, into okay. computers, right? And the, the VIC-20 was rented. Uh, and I, I VIC-20, and I believe I had to take a, a computers course to learn computers because that's what they, you know, you've learned. You're not, you're not getting a computer unless you learn computers. You got to take, you got to take computers. Right. And so <laughs> computers, a lot of it was typing fingers on the home row and all that stuff. Uh, and then some other stuff with the Apple II that never really stuck. Cause I didn't have an Apple II in my house. I had the VIC-20 that we rented that I filled around with and we learned basic. And then I learned computers, quote unquote, by learning how to type and do silly things like that. And then like the Mac just came like a bolt of lightning out of nowhere. Cause I didn't know the Mac existed. It arrived in like, I remember being in my grandfather's house and seeing his and it looking like this crazy alien thing doing the guided tour, which was on an audio cassette. I don't know if you've looked up this, this stuff, but like Mm-mm. it came with a, a, an audio cassette that you would put in your cassette player that we all had with the, you know, the long, skinny thing or whatever and you would hit play and then while it played you'd do things on the screen because they wow. audio visual you know it, would t- it was a tutorial yeah like how did the mouse work how does menu how do menus work what is the desktop trash can like you know folders the whole nine yards like guided tour of the macintosh with all sorts of silly games and stuff like that um and i remember that and then that's you know like childhood then a bunch of blank spots and then i'm back in my house sitting at my parents like official like paying bills desk thing or whatever with the mac on that desk it has a glass top desk uh, and so you use the mouse on top of the glass i don't know who thought that was a good idea but it worked okay playing with mac paint and then i'm at that desk for like the next like five years without getting up from the seat more or less <laughs> like that's that's the the vision and like so what happened in between there like how I know my grandfather. How later I would ask my parents, like, oh, you know, your uncle Bob uh, convinced your grandfather to get one. They convinced us. Like, I was not involved in this process at all. And you know, it was astronomically expensive, like twenty four hundred dollars and like nineteen eighty four dollars, right? Right. From a family that had just rented a Vic twenty, you know, because we couldn't afford to buy a Vic twenty. I mean, we were, you know, my parents. It's like to me in my head, it feels like buying, like putting in a swimming pool. Like what I remember a Mac costing back then. I, I mean, I I still remember the first time I I remember. The first time I remember seeing an ad for the Mac, and I was my eyes were like agape. There was a double page ad in like Time Magazine, which we got at the time, and I wanted it more than anything in the world. I didn't. I never wanted anything to do with a computer, but I saw the mouse. I saw that picture of like the Japanese lady, you know, done in pixels, and I think, as if memory serves, 
But I, I, I wanted it more than anything, but it was about the furthest thing in the world. It would be like buying a Mack truck. It, w- it was so expensive. Yeah, and I, I didn't know how much it cost at the time either. Uh, and I think that I should just really get my parents on the show. They would love that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I think the idea was computers are the future. Like, like how, how do you convince parents to spend, which must have been a, a huge amount of money to them. You know, even then, we were still in the smaller house, but, the, you know, their jobs were getting better. Like, whatever. Like, to to spend so much money on this thing. I think the idea was if you buy this, your kids, you know, all the hype, like your kids will be prepared for the future and get better jobs. And like, like that you had to buy a computer for your kids because that was one of the things that you did as a suburban parent to make sure your kids were ready to have the career of the future or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think it was a good move. (laughs) Like I think, Mm -hmm. I I think, I think it, uh, I don't, you know, the fact that I mostly played games on that thing because they wouldn't let me buy a game console, getting back to video games, mm-hmm. I don't think that uh, that undercuts the point. But it j- it's just dumb luck. Like they, if they had bought me an IBM PC, I would have been super into that as well. It, it just happened to buy me a Mac, and it just you know that that just changed entirely changed my life and gave me gave me one like I you know as I think I've I blogged about it like when I used to write on my blog. My problem as a kid. Uh, but you know aside from not being good at any of the things you're supposed to be good at involving other people (laughs) was that in the other realm i had a thousand things that i was super into and i remember actively thinking like even before middle school you have too many hobbies you can't you can't sustain this you can't be super into remote control cars uh uh, airplane models were you still were you still taking art lessons at this point Yeah, yeah art the whole the whole art thing computers programming uh building things out of wood uh dirt bikes like you can't you can't be into this many things like the number of sheer number of magazines that i would like finagle by way and describing subscribing to that would come to my house that i would read cover to cover it's like it i recognized that it was unsustainable i said how many people do you know that read seven magazines cover to cover every single like week or month they come to their house on totally unrelated topics it doesn't seem like it's a thing that even before you get to adulthood or anything. I when I, I remember being in middle school and thinking you got to drop something. Like hmm. you can't. You like what? What is it going to be? And why though? Just just uh, uh, financially mostly because yeah. like I had I didn't have a job. I had an allowance and I wanted a lot of things. I wanted new stuff for my computer. I wanted new remote control cars. I wanted a new model like every day of the week. Right. I wanted to do stuff with my bike. Like it just. I wanted all these things, and it's like you can't buy all this stuff. Like one remote control car, it's like you save for a year for it, and 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 you know computer stuff. Forget it. like a floppy drive is four hundred and fifty dollars. How are you gonna you know in a hard drive? Like it just, I didn't, I couldn't financially support this many hobbies. And I said, you have too many expensive hobbies. You need to, like, you need to cut something out. And it was difficult because I didn't want to cut things out. I wanted to add more stuff. How'd you how'd you decide what to pare down? <sighs> I, I didn't like I, I added things until <laughs> I mean like I, you know exhausting my funds was you know I, occasionally I would go in spurts I would like just put all my money towards remote control cars and then I would put all my money towards computer stuff and then I would put all my money towards my bike and then it was just I would just rotate around and I would add other things in there like when music came into the mix like that was a problem because it's like music is like expensive like you had to you had to buy it I remember taping things off the radio <laughs> to get around this mm-hmm. I would sit it would sit by my radio while I'm drawing remember that hobby or painting or whatever and when a song i wanted it came on i would quickly put hit play and record on my radio shack 
transistor radio to record the songs I wanted onto the, the tape that I was making. And especially if the songs had a cool intro, and if I missed it, I would be so pissed. And I would just sit there like, <laughs> when the song was ending, get your finger poised over the buttons. Like, oh, That's how I would spend my weekend. I would just leave a cassette tape in there with, and I, I knew this wasn't good because it stressed the tape, but I would just leave it on record with the pause on so that as soon as I knew, and, and yep, sometimes yep, yep. I would turn off the pause right before the song started and then just rewind if I didn't like the song. Yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> that's my that's my uphill both ways in snow story, I think. Yeah, and, and like, and why was I doing that? It's because I did, <laughs> I have a poor little kid and have any, like not poor mm-hmm. as in family-wise, but my personal wealth was small. My parents had plenty of money, but my allowance was small and I didn't have a job because I was too young to work anywhere. And so I had to, you know, I just... It, it was unsustainable. And so I kept adding more and more things I was interested in. Eventually, I got to the point where I was just reading about them, especially when I got super into cars, which is, you know, around that time, sixth grade or whatever. I, that was out of the, you know, I can't buy a car. I didn't have a license. I'm a sixth grader, right? So that I felt like was a cleaner one. It's like, okay, I could just subscribe to six car magazines <laughs> and read safer. every single page of them. Uh, but it's not like I'm in danger of buying a, a V12 Mercedes anytime soon. So that was like a, a reading only app. Airplanes was another one, like actual airplanes. Like my favorite, it, it, you know, volume of the encyclopedia was the a the, the second it was the second a volume one of the second a volumes that had the airplane section that had page after page and picture after picture of airplanes and this combined with my i uh, i took art lessons with the same sort of family in their in their basement art studio for many many years and the husband of the family was super into military aircraft and had all the jane's guides i don't know if you know what that is or roderick would but yeah i've heard of it yeah yeah the, and it was just uh magazines and catalogs and hardcover books filled with military aircraft and all their stats so when i was over there for art lessons i would page through those those were like safer hobbies to be into right and it was it was kind of a benign silly like you know like being able to identify tons of obscure aircraft from the 80s like it's mm-hmm. it's harmless well, it's more it's more aspirational where you're not as as tender. the rc car thing i never thought about that or is that right as i say it rc cars like yep. that that uh, that uh i wasn't even aware of that is that because like, I had an uncle who flew um, like radio control airplanes and it was yeah. a really I mean, I, I remember them costing. I remember hearing this in the early 80s. I remember hearing they were something like seven hundred dollars each. It was something ridiculous. And you had to be you had to really do a lot of practice before you flew one of these things because there were consequences if you crashed your plane. Was it like that with the car? Well, I desperately wanted a remote control airplane, but that was out of my reach financially because they they were super expensive. That's that's like a miniature yacht in some ways. I mean, it's it's that's a big leap. And some of them are huge. And the thing about the airplanes, especially when I was a kid, like the gas powered one, like you could kill somebody with one if you flew it into them because mm-hmm. these were not things the size of a shoebox. These were things with tiny little internal combustion engines. I remember it being like probably a four foot, maybe a four foot, three or four foot wingspan. It, some some even bigger, and you know. You don't like. It's not like you're going to take it and fly it and do it right the first time. You're going to you're going to crash it and destroy everything. And so, if you really wanted to get into this hobby, it was you know these are all rich people's hobbies. Like you'd have to like start with a small plane, buy it, crash it, buy it, crash it. You know, like right. work your way up to the big thing. I would that was I would just look through the catalog at those. I would buy the cars, and the cars were safer because one tenth scale electric off road cars are relatively inexpensive small maybe you could break someone's shin bone with them if you got really lucky and hit them just the right way but in general you're not gonna you're not gonna hurt anybody right what what you are going to do is crash a thing into trees or curbs or wherever you're doing it and break the front suspension parts and then repeatedly have to replace those but that was vaguely like that was just within the reach of my finances before i had a job because i could get one of those cars 
and I, I would crash it and I would just be like, well, this is three weeks. We'll have to save to get a new a arm. <laughs> and but wow. a lot of that hobby was like, because you would assemble them, you'd build them. And so it was almost like, you know, the model, the model building aspect, mm-hmm. building it and painting it and getting it all prepared was half the hobby. And so repairing it was like, that was the fun part too. Like I said, half the thing I'd ever do with my bike was like, take it apart, put it back together, you know, relubricate the pieces and adjust things on it. So at this point now, we've covered um, RC cars, um, interesting cars in general, planes in general. We've got computer stuff, especially you get the VIC-20, later you got the, the Apple II and the Mac, all these things. You know, I guess this is kind of implicit when we're talking about these axes, but those are all things you mostly did on your own, Right. Uh, well, it depends. Like, so, or like, let, let, let me just jump to the chase here is like, at what point did you start finding things that, cause when we go back to that whole nerd thing of feeling like, Oh, you're the whatever guy, well, at least the D and D guys, at least, you know, <laughs> I think one reason is that I, I am, believe it or not, slightly more introverted than I like to think, especially when I was a young nerdy, poor kid, I was very happy to just sit around and read the DM guide all day. Like that was fine. That was plenty for me to do. But I, I did like the social aspect of it. You know, drinking Mountain Dew and listening to Rush and playing D&D was like a highlight of ninth grade for me. That was a lot of fun. But like at what point did you find stuff where you were comfortable getting absorbed in that and bringing other people in, whether that was through Usenet or through user groups or through whatever? Like what are the, what are the, what are the ones of these hobbies, these enduring hobbies, where you ended up finding you know, friendship or camaraderie? Well, this was all pre-internet, so the internet was totally out of the out of the, the picture for all of this. Depending on the thing, there were different aspects of it that could be used as a proxy for my complete inability to relate to other human beings. So, for example, <laughs> artwork. I think you're exaggerating. No, I'm not. Really? Artwork, wow. yeah. Artwork, right? Uh, drawing things, painting things. That was actually pretty good for getting people to give you positive attention briefly. Maybe not good for forming friendships, but like, for example, you know, this was back when we had art class in school. I think they still have those in some schools. Uh, <laughs> it was one of the classes everybody had. You'd go to <laughs> art. When we went to art, I would do really well in art because I could draw things. And the rest of the class was drawing stick figures and I'm doing something nice. People would be impressed by that. People would come over and look at what you're doing and be impressed. That is a good positive experience doodling in your notebook or or decorating the covers or back covers of your notebooks because i sure as hell wasn't paying attention in class because i hated school uh (laughs) makes people maybe the guy sitting next to you notices the very cool you know uh spaceship you have uh blowing something up that you're drawing in your margins gives you brief positive attention computers kind of similar but for the adult world because adults didn't know how the hell computers worked but i did I became the expert for uh, uh, the person who knew the most about our computer was me probably within like a day and a half of the thing being in the house. And that never changed back. Right. So if relatives would come over and they had questions about computers, they would ask me. I would accomplish things on my computers, like doing my little book report with all sorts of different fonts and everything in MacWrite and putting an illustration in. And the teachers were impressed by that. Lots of things that you could do, kind of like the band thing, where like the whole school would get to see the band play and realize. But you, you had cognizance band. of that. Like, first of all, it's cool because, like, on the one hand, that's a great kind of switcheroo because you, yeah, yeah, you get to impress impress the teacher, but that's also a chance to get to use the computer. Like, this is for school. I'm doing this Mac Paint thing for <laughs> yeah, school. That, that didn't work that way. I was on the computer like 24 hours a day. Like, that was it. Really did absorb a lot of my life. But, but yeah, it. These, but you notice all these things are about getting brief positive attention from somebody, whether it be peers or adults or whatever, but not particularly about forming friendships surrounding them. The only times that kind of worked is I was into remote control cars. There were a couple of people at school who were into remote control cars. 
we would probably never be friends otherwise because you know they were you know more socially integrated than i was but because we were both into remote control cars you, you know again before the internet you were excited to find anybody in your school who was who was who had a real remote control car let alone was into them like you were and so you would get together so you could see each other's cars and drive them. And, and this is just to clarify for me, because I, I, this is you're younger than I am. This is before it became like a Radio Shack kind of thing, right? This is when it's more of like a true hobbyist, like build your own, build your own hi-fi. It was also a Radio Shack, Radio Shack thing, like, but that was the distinction. You weren't into like those toy cars that you buy, you know, the crappy toy cars that you buy at Toys R Us or Radio Shack. This is the one with like the two servos, the two like like joysticks. This, you know, one tenth scale off road electric cars, and okay. some of the people had one a scale gas, and like all you know, like the ones that were in the Tower Hobbies catalog, right? There was a different class of things. Well, they really were like little cars. Yeah, I mean, they they still make them. They still, yeah, I I bought one for my son because that's <laughs> what parents do. That's what game. a dad does. <laughs> yeah, um, and. And it was distinct. Like, everyone had, like, oh, I have a little remote control car that zips around. That's not what we were talking about. So if you found someone who also, you know, who subscribed to this magazine or whatever, do you get a friendship with them out of there? Kind of, sort of. Like, you get the type of thing where while you're being uh, uh, abused and ridiculed and beaten up, they feel bad as they walk by. <laughs> you know, like, they, they, they give you the look, like, uh, you know, like, which is better than nothing, right? But still not quite... Uh, forming real lasting friendships out of D and D was the closest I got because I had, uh, you know, a couple of friends who would, you know, again with D and D, like it was difficult to find. We didn't, I don't know if there was five people in our entire school who played it, but we didn't find each other. Like most of my D and D was played one on one with one friend and maybe a, a, a second one thrown in there, uh, and that was the best you could hope for out of that. And, and when I look back at the people who I was, you know, the few people who were actually good friends with me in school. I wonder, it's like the people who were able to, to tolerate how terrible I was, right? And I, they, I don't know how or why they were able to tolerate, but that's what it comes down to. Like, that maybe they saw something in me or were interested or, like, were impressed by the things I could do or was interested in or were willing to put up with my crap, right? Are you saying you acted the same way with your friends as you did with the, you were a big, terrible, spiky shell with your friends as well yeah, as other people? Yeah, yeah, no, just generally, you know cynical sarcastic obnoxious not cognizant of other people's feelings like like a, like a sad tomato you were like kind of bummed i don't know I, at the time you feel like you're just being you right it feels <laughs> normal and it feels like it, when people get upset with the things you do it's like you know what do you mean i'm just being me right but it's in retrospect that you realize like the reason no one was friends with you is because you were a jerk to everybody <laughs> and yeah you know, right yeah, yeah like you know and so yeah it, but going through the hobbies of things like you're right most of these were solitary reading car magazines was solitary art you know briefly impressive but mostly solitary uh i don't know what what else do we have the computers i didn't have a modem didn't have a network connection that was entirely solitary except for when i could try to bring people over and show them that never would have occurred to me the whole idea of networking in general i mean that was not even vaguely on my radar screen until at least 1992 i didn't act on it until 1993 i mean it's, it's just now now it seems so crazy but um, you know, just as a side note, like one reason I'm sympathetic to like to the way my daughter feels about, you know, well, you know, she's just playing creative mode Minecraft. She's just having fun. She made a treehouse today. Like, you know, but like, I'm sympathetic to that feeling because that's how I was with the Mac where I'm like, wait a minute. Like I'm in college, you know, I'm, I'm doing stuff with girls. I have all these things to do. I have so much work. And it was still like every conceivable minute that I could steal. 
I was in that room with the Max and like sitting there on the chair waiting for it to have a chance to go and play with Talking Moose. It's like I was completely obsessed. It was all I wanted to do every spare moment. Like this place, funny David Letterman sounds. Oh my God. I can, I mean, like Mac Paint alone. It was, it was completely immersive. I could have spent the way, the way people supposedly are with video games now. I mean, that, that would have been me if I had the chance. If I had my own Mac, I would have flunked out of school. I would have just been on it all the time. It was like utterly immersive to me. Yeah, that's, I mean, on my Mac, I just would just spend hours and hours and hours and hours to a, in front of a non-network connected computer. This is a tale I will tell my, tell my children and grandchildren. Just changing your desktop background. Drawing my own desktop background, using Reza to change the system. Just like, it was not connected to anything. There was no software coming in. I had what I had on floppy disks, whatever I copied from my grandfather last time I visited because he would go to the Mac user group and get a bunch of software on floppies and then I would copy them and bring them back. That's all I had. There was no new software coming in. There was no new information coming mm-hmm. in. It was a completely closed, sealed box. No modem, no networking, no nothing. And yet I would spend hours. I don't think time. I knew how to buy software. I mean, when I when I got a Mac, this now, again, this, I can't believe how quickly this became ancient history. As Let me just say, like, in terms of, like, the, uh, like when I moved to San Francisco in 1999, there was still, uh, like, there was a place over on, I want to say, 6th Street that was, like, what was it called? Um, Mac Adam, it was called. And it was this Mac store where you would go in, <laughs> John, 1999, you walk into this store, it had to be 15, like 10,000, 15,000 square feet of just wall to wall Macs, software, peripherals, everything you could ever need. Like if you needed a SCSI 50, that is where you went. If you needed it fixed, that is where you went. Anything you needed, you would go to that place. You could go to CompUSA, but like, you know, this this was an age. This is only this is like 15 years ago where you could still have this incredibly thriving packed store full of people that was a totally independent Mac reseller, I guess, and you know, service provider and all that stuff. It's just it's really weird how how quickly that went to just kind of going away. But that was the Mac experience when I got into it. Like when I bought my Mac, I think, I'm trying to remember where I bought it. I think I bought it in Sarasota. I went to a store and bought it. It was a very different experience. There was not an Apple store, right? <laughs> there wasn't like a catalog. If you could order it, I mean, like, first of all, the idea of ordering quote unquote online or from a catalog in at that particular time seemed crazy. By 1992, three, four, like I did everything through Mac Warehouse, you know? But but you know what I'm saying? Like back then, it was you. What am I trying to say? You go into that place, and it, it felt like a it felt like a D and D club. Like there were so many people in there, you could ask questions. People would give you advice, and it was like this whole immersive environment to go into a place like that. And that's just gone now. I guess they kind of still exist, but I don't know how. I didn't have any contact with that because I guess I mean maybe just being out in the suburbs that I was isolated enough. Like I said, where I got most of my software was when I visited my grandfather. He went to his mug, his Mac user group. Yep. Yep. And he got floppy disks and I would bring blanks with me and copy his floppy disks and bring them back home. And that is the only place I got software until like Egghead Software opened. And Egghead Software I would go there and go to the little Mac ghetto that they had. Is that like in a mall? No. You didn't have Egghead near you? It was a chain. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, but was it closer to like a GameStop type place? It was in a, it was in a strip mall. In a strip uh, mall, okay. Yeah, okay. And, and so it was a store. It had shelf upon shelf of boxes containing software, and there was a small section that, that had Mac software and occasionally had a Mac game. So by that point, I was so heavily into the Mac magazines that, you know, Mac Connection and Mac Warehouse, you know. Mac Mac Warehouse was like, was, was my Bible. I mean, I, I, would just, I would just hang over that thing, especially at a time when stuff like, I don't know if you remember, there was this weird spike in the mid-ish, toward the mid-ish 90s, where suddenly, like, RAM went way up in price, and it became this really huge deal. And I'd be, like, reading it, like, the way normal men read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, where I would just pour over it. I would look at what's on sale. I just, 
Yeah, I remember looking at the back of the magazines and and looking every month. I would look to see how much is you know one sim for like you know a one one megabyte sim or you know whatever, and then it was like forty dollars, and then it was like one month I would see it at like you know thirty two dollars. I should buy, and like thirty two dollars was such an astronomical sum to me at that. This is I'm like back when I'm nine or ten, like trying to think about you know upgrading there or maybe my Mac SE. But it was expensive because if we, you know when we did that at my office that we had to you know do that for everybody and do it ourselves where you got to make sure you get you know you're on your boss's FX and like you better get that in the slot the right way or <laughs> there's going to be hell to pay. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot, a lot of, like I talk about the car magazines where it's like, well, I'm not going to be buying a V12 Mercedes anytime soon. At a certain point, my Mac interest became like that because, mm-hmm. yeah, my parents bought me a Mac and eventually my motherboard upgraded to a Mac Plus and then we, then it was like... But then the Mac 2 comes out and like, do you remember when the FX came out? The FX came out and it was like, oh my God. Wasn't that kind of the first like, oh wow, Mac where you were well, like... Well, the, the Mac 2 was color and that right, big exploded my mind because like I had, you know, having seen the Mac in black and white, it was, it was, you know, it was like Dorothy in Wizard of Oz. Like it was just always black and white. And mm-hmm. I remember a, a cover of like Macworld magazine showed like a folder that was yellow. I'm like, folders can't be yellow. What is this madness? They're black and white. It was just amazing. Right. And, but the Mac two was just so expensive. There was no way I was getting one. Like Macs really were very expensive. And like, despite the fact that we got one and managed to upgrade it and I was adding floppy drives and trying to get hard drives for it, the idea of getting another Mac was just you know that wasn't going to happen and i would see them in the things like th- these new macs would come out and i knew i wouldn't get them i i, I just i just uh hit wolfram uh half an hour ago when you were first talking about this 2495 uh in 1984 is 5781 dollars today yep and that's, so that's a chunk of change for something that is probably not maybe not a gamble but i mean it's almost like you if you bought a pc i mean a pc was much less costly and did maybe did quote unquote less, but it, it was more like, oh, that's for work. That's for business. That's for education. A Mac must have seemed like a little bit of a gamble. So my strategy for, with all these things was like, I, I would read about these new Macs and I would want them. Uh, and I needed to find some way to get them. And mostly I spent my time pooling my uh, birthday and Christmas gifts to get peripherals for the Mac I had, like <laughs> hard drives and floppy drives and stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the next time I could get a computer was when my sister, who is four years older than me, went to college. Because college, that's when I learned about the magic of the educational discount. Oh. And so it was like, all right, now it's on. Because, you know. It's like, like some, it could be like, what, 20%, right? But the, the Macs, they, they were just astronomically expensive. And I don't understand how my parents bought me that first Mac and upgraded to a Plus. But then I was using a Mac Plus until my sister went to college, right? Because, you know, new Macs were out. Like, there was the SE, right? And there was the SE30, and there was the 2, and there was the 2X, right? But I could not get those. Like, mm-hmm. there was no way we were going to get those, right? I mean, weren't those, I mean, weren't they like like $4,000 or something? It was, it was, there were more. Like, go look up the original price, like yeah, what the Mac well. 2X was, right? Without the monitor. But the monitor was like $1,000 or whatever it was. So here I am. She's going off to college. And again, I, I have more memory of how I managed to finagle this because I went on the college tours with her, and you go to the campus store, and that was the first time I saw, like, there's a whole room full of Macs. Like, this, you know, the campus store would have all sorts of Macs that you could get. And there was an educational discount. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know this existed, right? The, I'm looking at Wikipedia now. The, the introductory price of the Mac SE with no options or anything was $4,400. This is a black and white nine-inch screen. That's what I bought. I, I remember being about three. I remember, I feel like it being like about 3000 I don't think it was 4000 But I had an SE with two floppies, 
That's the SE. This is the SE30. Oh, the SE30. Oh, dear. Different machine. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that. Oh, dear. And, and was it a 20 meg drive? Uh, something like that. And, Had like two. How many? How much RAM? You could get a four. I think you could get a 40 in it. There's one megabyte of RAM. Oh, yeah. That's it. Yeah, because I remember even that we had so after a little bit of upgrading, we had so many fifty two hundred fifty six k um, RAM chips in the office. We were using them as Christmas ornaments. Like yeah. that—that that was the coin of the realm, if memory serves. Like th- those were like the RAM in every machine, you know. So with the educational discount, yeah, it opened the door finally to do for me to do full court press. And here's what <laughs> I managed to convince my parents to do: okay, use the educational discount to buy an SE thirty. Give me the SE30 and give her the Mac Plus to take to college with her. What? <laughs> How did you manage? You had an SE30 in your house? Yes. Oh yeah, my when she God. when she went to college, they used her educational discount to finally replace our Mac Plus. Uh, gave her <laughs> the Mac Plus, which by the way, she used that Mac Plus for all 4 years of college and after college. You're like you're Svengali. How do it's like here's what we will do for Christmas. You'll acquire for me a puppy. <laughs> And give her my old bed. Yeah, and she, like I said, this is so. This is nineteen <laughs> what nineteen eighty nine ish. Yeah, uh, when she's going off to college, she used that computer into the nineties. A Mac Plus with one meg of RAM, one floppy drive, and an external hard drive. The most you could see though. The thing is, you could do that back then. You really could. I mean, you could. Well, we're on system. What you're on system? It was barbaric. Well, system six something. Like six I mean, point like, something. Yeah. She used it way past its its useful life. But like, I mean, in in the end, it would, I think what it came down to is she was not quote unquote into computers, and she wasn't right. She needed something to write her papers on. You could you you could write your papers. on. I don't remember if she brought the image writer with her, but you could like you know bring your floppy disk to the lab and print a thing, right? Yeah, image writer one, not image writer two. I had an image writer two. Yeah. Yeah, the two was much fancier. We just had the one because that's what that's what we got when we got the original Mac, and we never upgraded. Was that more that yellow color, that old color? What was what you know? They made that change where they went to what they call it platinum. Like my SE, or excuse me, my SE was like the platinum, and like the mm-hmm. original Mac was like that more looked like kind of yellowed look. Yep, and it got even yellower if it was in the sun. But yeah, the, all, right. all of our stuff, the Mac Plus and the Image Writer, were the older yellow. The SE thirty was the, was the nicer uh, color. So. That, like, for the whole rest of that time, it was like I was reading about all these Macs and I couldn't have, and even when I got the SE30, again, still not color, still not a color Mac. Color Macs had been a thing for a long time. Yep. I had tremendous amounts of techno lust and no means to buy these things, uh, which, you know, boohoo, my parents bought this fancy computer for me, you know, but like, but that the computer hobby became like the car hobby where it's like, I'm never going to be able to buy a Ferrari, but... I'm well off enough to get a nice Honda Accord, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, it became, here's what you have and here's what you want. And the fallout was of this crazy materialism is like, in my adult life, when I became able to purchase all these computers that I lusted after, I did. Like, I have a Mac 2FX in my house right now. Yeah, didn't you buy one on eBay, did you say? Yeah, it's uh, the uh, MIT Swap. MIT Swap, right? sorry, yeah. And how, how much was it when you got it? Oh, I don't know, like, five dollars oh <laughs> god that's so right. weird and i have i have se's i have multicolor imax i have all these things that i couldn't get when i was a kid or that you know or even when i was older like i always wanted you know one of every color of imac but who's gonna buy that right <laughs> i did that in the 90s i did that in the 90s with atari 2600 i could not afford an atari when i was a kid and then i bought one at a, at a flea market and like i had by the <laughs> and i started acquiring games i had a shoebox full of games and it was still so fun even even in like the mid 90s it was still so fun to play moon patrol at home 
you know but you like it's a weird old See, you have some video game cred here <laughs> oh yeah i got deep i got in television baseball boy i'll tell you i'm pretty good <laughs> that was that was the only good baseball game i remember ever playing on uh, a video game i didn't mean to interrupt you that's that's that we should you know put, write that on your card for like how how did you know so atari 2600 yeah and then all of a sudden games stop tumbleweeds yeah Here's what I'm trying to get to, the bridge I'm trying to find. I, and I'm first of all, I'm, I appreciate you telling this. I, I did not know uh, the – I didn't have the uh, coloring in the details on a lot of this stuff. So here's what I'm curious about, though. So at some point, the Internet comes along. And I'm just curious because, like, for me, um, I'm trying to think how this started. Because the part that I'm having trouble remembering is how a modem got into my life. I think the way it happened was we had two modems at our office. So we did most of the, we did, you know, this legal support stuff, mostly working with expert witnesses. So somebody's going to go and say, hi, Dow Chemical never hurt anybody. And so we would make courtroom exhibits for that person. Yes, for the defense. And we had this one guy we worked with in Colorado. So we had to get a Hayes modem, a 2600 modem, and uh, would do file transfers. And there was this whole crazy acrobatics. We had one Mac that was just dedicated to doing file transfers to this guy. <laughs> Isn't this bananas? There, it was by like the copier and by the printer. You would go and like go to this little interact with this one Mac. You bring your floppy disk or get it off the network. You put it on there. You do the dial-up. And it used to be a real pain. You got to get the right modem protocol and all that stuff. Long story short, I don't know how it happened, but just just slightly before I got my Freenet, like, you know, Telnet account that introduced me to the internet, um, we had, I learned about the Mac user group in town. And I'm, I'm curious about your, your, your uh, how much that, was that ever your inroad into online stuff or into like community in particular because for me it was so great i'd never been on a bbs before and suddenly there was this guy and like there was this really rich culture of like exactly how you're supposed to behave and like you know very strictly enforced rules about you know what i'm talking about like like military school all over again which is another topic we should talk about (laughs) writing it down um but yeah bob o'leary's uh mac what was it called his tally mac for tallahassee uh, mac and you could go there and download freeware and shareware there were chat rooms. There were well, there weren't even chat rooms. Sorry, there were bulletin boards. You could go and like leave a note, and then people would respond. Did you? Is that like in terms of how you first got onto the online experience? Was it through things like that, or what? How, what was your first inroad into like Mac communities and online stuff? I feel like my timing for this was pretty perfect, and your timing sounds like it was pretty bad because you were out of school just when this was hitting. Had you been in school, your experience would have we been had zero networking at my school that I'm even aware of. Right, and then you left school. This is your like this is your court exhibit. This is like a job, right? You're, yeah, this is circa circa ninety two, ninety three. You're an employed person, and then yeah, you you just missed it. But like, so I I had the other experience where totally isolated. I knew what a modem was. I knew what acoustic coupling modem was. I again, you know, voyeur being a voyeur of these things, seeing them in catalogs, knowing their prices, knowing different model numbers, knowing I was never going to have one. You know, because like. I didn't even know who I would end up calling, right? And I also knew that... <laughs> what a sad way to put that. Well, you know, like, if I got one, you know, I didn't... Uh, and and I... Well, I don't buy stamps. Who would I write a letter to? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, like, in war games, they're just, you know, look up phone numbers in the phone, but, like, but I knew enough to know that's not how yeah. it works. And if there were BBS, I hadn't, you know, so networking... The closest I came, the closest contact I had to networking was doing IPX networking with my friend's PCs to play Doom, like in their house with multiple PCs, right? It's always, you know, or, or like trying to do Apple Talk amongst 
uh, you know, Apple computers or Macs in, the, in like the, the school lab or whatever to try to, I don't know if Marathon was out then, but like to try to, you know, that, that was it. Local, local area networking. Wider internet, BBS. I knew the, I knew BBSs existed. I don't think I knew much about the internet at all. But basically, my entire computing life until I went to college was absolutely 100% isolated, no networking whatsoever. And I feel like that's a reasonably good dividing line of like separating your childhood when you're just kind of like doing your things in your little place. And then I go off to college, and then like the whole world opens. I go to college at a different place. I go to college in a different state than than I grew up in. I'm away from my parents for the first time, more or less permanently, because I never went to boarding school or anything like that. Didn't even go to sleepaway camp, right? Uh, and when I landed in college in 1993, I guess I'm so bad with 93 is when you started. Wait, is that that can't be right? Yeah. Yeah, 18. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So in 1993, that was prime time of like, you know, the the web. That was that was the first wave of normal people using anything online. Yeah, like cuz the web was just coming out around then. So I I landed a school that has a whole bunch of things going for it. First of all, I knew enough about networking the internet that I wanted uh to make sure I had some kind of access. And now that I'm thinking, I think we... Uh, where, where did you go? Was it BU or UMass? Yeah, Boston University. Okay. So I was looking for the dorm that had, like, an internet connection in the dorm. Most dorms didn't have internet connection. There was one particular dorm that actually had, like, you know, non-modem, I mean. Like, you didn't mm-hmm. have to use your phone line, right? That, and there was one dorm that did have it. I didn't get into that dorm. The dorm I was in, I, I was in a two-person room one phone line between the two people and that was it and that one phone line was how you either called people on the telephone or how you connected to the <laughs> you know the computer network wait are you kidding you're kidding and it was shared yeah i was later and i think it was uh, maybe in my my sophomore or junior year i was in a five person suite with one phone line also the only way you connect to either the computer system or the phone right um, so that was not good for me there. I still had my Mac on my desk and everything and i would monopolize that phone line you better believe it you'd use z modem and everything right mm-hmm. but here's the thing down in the computer lab in the school, there were X terms and VT220s connected directly to the internet, you know, with like Ethernet cables. Mm-hmm. And and that that was where it was at because they had a they had NCSA mosaic on the X terms. Oh my god, really? And you could and you could browse the web. Oh, so these are hardwired hardwired, hardwired like um what kind of operating system is that? Uh there were X terms they were running they were on the X Windows server, you know, they were they were clients like so that But they were the, they were GUIs. You could still just go you could run mosaic like right on yeah, the yeah 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 i mean they're running M- mwm or whatever your window manager you wanted to uh, run was and so the, the the code the applications were actually running on the servers so they were displaying on these little x window terminals oh my right gosh. uh and it was black and white and i remember in the first versions of this there was some kind of bug in the in the window manager or something where all the images were were mirror vertically mirrored so if you saw a fish you would see a fish that was squished to half the width it was supposed to be and then the mirror image of that fish facing the other direction so one fish facing right one fish facing left you know so what so what uh, right. and and that was how the web looked that that got sorted out eventually still like grayscale like maybe 16 grays or something like that no color x terms until a little bit later uh but the you, you know it's like like ethernet connection to the internet it was probably just you know 10 base t or something but yeah but compared still. to compared to modems like i was there when people were putting up the first the first web pages more or less that you mm-hmm. know the, the, the web when yahoo had a list of like every web page right yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you know and i could make my own web page and put it in my home directory at boston university and- you had like a tilde directory 
Yeah, and anybody in the world could see it because it was URLs, triple W, B, U, E, D, U, whatever, you know, I don't think it was, you know, tilde my username and slash, like, and there was different machines in the CS cluster you could have uh, things and put, like, HTML, what is that, image tags, like, I was there. There should be a name for this, though, in the same way that, like, you're going to watch Gilligan's Island because it's what's on. I mean, like, I feel like I, I, feel like I have to stop you and say, like, you don't have to explain this because I, I remember, like, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm just using Gopher and this is fun. Or in this case, I'm using Mosaic. And it doesn't matter what it is. I just want to watch these images load. It was just, you know what I mean? Just watching that was that even just the most basic demo of how that worked, it felt like a paradigmatic leap. To like and, suddenly this computer goes other places, and nobody knew anything. Like that was the best thing about it. Like I didn't know anything. That's how it, that, you just pick it up. I mean, you, well, obviously you had a background, but we were the first people in the world to collectively learn HTML together. I wasn't catching up to people who knew HTML. Like that was it. All of us were doing it more or less at the same time. Right. What is CGI? What is HTML? How do you, I? I remember the first time that we had we had Netscape on our machines, right? And they, this is the profound memory in my life. You know, what's the time between uh, uh, Mosaic and Netscape? I don't think it's particularly long. I, I think it's less than a year, probably. Right? right. Yeah. All right. So, but during that time, I, the web, had been become such an uh, important part of my life, both writing things for it and figuring HTML and reading web pages. Then when Netscape came out, the memory that will be burned in my mind forever was a demo web page. I don't know if it was made by a person or made by Netscape. That showed five images arranged like the five dots on on the the, the five side of a, of a six sided die. Yeah, you know, in the corners and in the middle. And I was like, "You can't do that." Images one, two, three, four, five. Like, because all images could be was against the left margin. You couldn't have images it was clear. Everything cleared. You couldn't have a cent. You could. There was no CSS. They had a centered image. It was left, a line left, a line right, centered. And didn't Netscape introduce tables too? Yeah, or they could have done it with tables, whatever it is. But just merely viewing that image yeah. was like it, like it shattered the glass that was in front of my eyes. And saying <laughs> the web was, and why? Because all the images weren't left aligned. Yes. Like that, that was the most profound moment in 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 my life in terms of uh, you know understanding where the web was going to go. Seeing a centered image and a right aligned image. Right, right. And then centered was like the only way to go. Left really felt like an <laughs> ac- academic made that page. Yeah, I mean, you know, because that's what all the they were like scientific papers in the beginning, or like and the. the and the Lego homepage and like, you know, just mm-hmm. and people's homepages where they would like, you know, I mean, and you were there for all this as well. Yeah, but absolutely. Like, I was on Ethernet the whole time. Oh, like, my God. I, didn't, I couldn't. I, that's why I never spent any time in my dorm. Why would you ever go back to your dorm where you have a, a 2400 baud modem and eventually a 9600, you know, going out like, why would you ever go there when you have an Ethernet connection? Ethernet? Right. And that Ethernet connection to the Internet was like a super high bandwidth connection between me and all the other people who are figuring out the web at the same now, time. You were, you were like, the thing is, what you're not leaving out, but what you're describing though, like having everything that you had was like, to me, you were like Richie Rich because you had so much stuff that I didn't have. Because the thing was the kind of account that I had, and I'm going to do that thing where I probably say things wrong here, but I had what was called a Freenet account. And Freenet was this project where like all across the United States, various kinds of uh, universities that had supercomputers or just computer programs would make, uh, make it available to people. You come in, you show your you know driver's license or whatever, and you can get a, a free internet account. And I think I'm using the right word. They're a Telnet account where you just go in, you log in, you got access to like, you know, VI, and then you can go and go into Gopher. You could go into, you know, any of those typical command line things. That was my introduction to the internet. And as I learned more and I, I read more and I saw like, you know, for me, like even before Mosaic, 
I think it was Eudora. Like I really wanted Eudora. I'd seen Eudora and I was like, I, I, I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit here. But to get Eudora, Eudora, you have to help me phonetically on this. Eudora would only work if you had a, I think TCP IP connection or a whatever it was called. There was the one kind of connection that wasn't just was a PPP. slip. It was, yeah, you had to have a PPP or a PPPoE later. Yeah, you, you were just, you basically, you were trying to get a TCP connection. Yeah, but you, you wouldn't, it wasn't the emulation kind of nonsense going on through the haze. Yeah, you weren't, you weren't a terminal. You weren't pretending your Mac was a, was a, a, a character-based input-output right. device. You were, you were actually giving your Mac an IP address and, and. But this was, this was what you, to get that, you had to get an internet. I mean, you had to get like a slip or a PPP account, which I remember being some. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like Ralphie in a Christmas tree. I remember that being like forty dollars a month. It was something asinine to have that well, kind of connection. That's why you were saying like that you were that I was Richie Rich compared to you. Here's the thing. And, and you had then, of course, you had the pipe like with having uh, Ethernet. I can't. You were on like a, like a T1 or you know you said a ten base T. Yeah, well, it was it was ten base T Ethernet. I think it was the the actually the ones with the little vampire uh, things where they would tap into like you'd have a cable and there would be like a little pin they would tap into. Anyway, slow Ethernet, but still massively faster than a modem. Yeah. All right, and so I was enjoying that, and then eventually the color X terms came. It was even better, and everything was great. And I would I would dial up from my dorm room with my crappy modem. I at hate that you point, so much. I, oh my that God. point, that point, I would be using you know Telnet and and the whole you know terminal emulation and everything like that. But then I would go home for the summer, right? And how can you go home? And like that's why I say your free net. I was jealous of the places that I knew in the country. I think I probably heard of of. Uh, uh, you know, Freenet and and other places where it was like municipal type of things because right. again, it was so expensive to get any kind of internet connection. It's like I would I would go from school where I had everything and I would come home and I would have to. It was well, and, we're, and understand we're we're talking about a way to dial up with your modem. We're not talking about getting an Ethernet. Well, well, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Well, here's what I wanted out of that connection. First, it, I found it very difficult to convince my parents that they should have this internet connection thing because, despite the fact that I managed to get them to do all that stuff with the computers, internet was somehow a harder sell because it was like a monthly recurring fee. I don't know. And it was difficult for me to convince them, right? And the second thing is, I wanted two things out of it. One, I wanted a shell account, which is how I would refer to what you're calling a telnet account, mm-hmm. where you end up at a shell prompt on a Unix machine. Why did I want that? Because half my time was spent messing around with Unix and writing little programs and doing all sorts of stuff like that. Were you already conversing in Bash or, or whatever your Oh, yeah, I learned was? all that at college. Like, I just, okay. you know, again, dove into that. Like, I remember printing man pages at the computer, computer mm-hmm. you know, center and bringing them back to my dorm room and going through them, like starting with the LS man page, right? So Ladies. Yeah, I did, I did, <laughs> yeah, I did all that, right? <laughs> printing out man pages, literally, because it was way faster than trying to look at them over my computer, right? Right. You know, anyway, uh, I, so I wanted the shell account, but like you said, if you just have a shell account... That's no good. You can't do web browsing with that. I wanted to use you, you know, could use links you know, or, or similar, but you you couldn't you couldn't really tap into the goodness. I could read Usenet and Tin and everything, but I I wanted to have a GUI experience, and to do that, you had to have a, a, a either a shell account that supported uh, you know SLIP or PVP, where you could initiate that from. You could go into the shell account and initiate that connection and have something on your Mac that would receive that, and then you would establish a TCP connection over like a terminal. It was terrible, but anyway, you could do that. Or you could buy the fancier account, like you said, that would give you an actual TCP connection. And then you could run Netscape on your Mac. And it took a long time to get that into my house uh, because it was expensive and I wasn't paying the bills. I don't know why. I, like, How expensive could it possibly have been? I, I, here's what I remember. What I remember is, and I might be slightly conflating this with, what I'm remembering is I was on a place called, I was on Polaris and then I was on Network Tallahassee. Network Tallahassee, I, I mean, I remember it getting down to like $15 a month. So my hand of God, I, what I'm remembering is that if you wanted like a, you know, not residential, but a personal 
internet dial-up connection where you had a 9600 modem that connected to another modem, a bank of modems, right? And, and of course, all these companies, it was like the video rental industry circa 1981. Like, this was blowing up. This place was exploding in growth, like, within, like, two years. But I feel like I feel like the first one I had, I, I could really be remembering this wrong, but I feel like I got a teal to page and a PPP connection for something like, I want to say $40 a month. I mean, I remember it being on par with what my cable cost. Yeah, I think it was similar. I don't know why I always thought that was so expensive or I didn't want to pay for it myself or couldn't convince my parents to get it. But And it, we still, uh, for a long time, only had one phone line. So there was the whole, you know. Right. But I mean, but that, that's, that's you know, even if it was $20 then, it's $20 then, like over a year, you pay that every month. That It really, it's a lot of dough. Yeah. So that was, that was how my college went. At college, it was like just, you know, there's obviously the, the college courses and everything itself, but my other education was, you know, the internet and just going along with that. And then I would go home and bravely try to eke out some kind of, you know, netcom account or whatever, something that's going to give me a, a TCP connection and a shell connection. And like, it just, it wasn't the same. Like I would, I would do the thing that so many people did where at a certain time of day you'd go and you would quote unquote log on. Like I would make the telnet connection. I would make the PPP connection. I would do some stuff and then you would log off because someone else needed to use the phone or whatever. Right. Right. And that was a fixed activity as opposed to today where you were always on everywhere all the time. Right. It wasn't, it hadn't transitioned to that. And at school I was on, you know, always on everywhere all the time as much as I could be. I, mean, I can't imagine that because th- th- that, there was like the double constraint of location and time that, you know, I think in large part had a, had a giant impact on how I came to have such a strange evolving sense of email over the course of like five to eight years, right? Like at the end of those years, I'm like, oh my God, suddenly this became this thing I have to do all the time. Whereas it used to be, oh my God, I cannot wait until I can get to this place at this time and have this amount of access to actually check my email. Like opening up Eudora in the morning, like I looked forward to more than anything. It was yeah. so exciting to hear that little doo-doo-doo. I remember you th- uh, telling the story of you emailing that your friend in, uh, was it London or something? Yeah, that was the first thing I did when I got a, I was on probably, I want to say Pine, but I don't, might not have been, wasn't Mutt. Mutt's pretty nerdy, right? Pine's kind of like a more typical. They're, um, they're a similar vintage. But yeah, I mean, I, I figured out and I went in and I like, I like you, I had some kind of little pamphlet on how to do it. And I, it was a friend of mine from New College who was going to Oxford. And I was like, oh, I, I know one person that has an email address. And I type it in and I'm like, so here's my here's what my internet here's my 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 first email address was Merlin at freenet dot dot u no 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 it was no at first it was Merlin at freenet dot ncsa dot fsu dot edu and so imagine in 1993 or four writing that on a piece of paper and handing it to someone and it, it, you might as well have a tinfoil hat on your head. It's, it was awful. It wasn't like going like, hey, I'm like, I'm Jim at AOL.com. Like that, it was so bizarre. But I sat there, I got his address. I'm typing, typing, the same way you would with any new technology, carefully typing, typing, typing. I'm like, hey, Tim, it's Merlin. I mean, is email like a thing? And I sent it and like he wrote, he must have had the same kind of connection you did. My hand to God, within like 10 minutes, he wrote me back. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, what just happened? Is this some kind of like a mechanical Turk? Like, what is this? Yeah, that uh, the reason I brought that up is because thinking of that experience, like you using it kind of like magic letter writing, I'm thinking of uh, when I was at school, constant communication with all the people I knew at school online. When we all went home for the summer, we didn't write, we didn't email. Why? Because most of the people 
had no capacity to email once they went home. Mm-hmm. Like it was like, well, everybody break. And you're like, wow, you got the internet and you've all got email accounts. You routinely email each other, you know, dozens of times a day and at, at school and everything. Surely you'll keep in touch when you all go home. Nope. Nope. First of all, I wasn't even on the computer half the time. I was only on, and when I would go and I would check my email, like, there was nothing. There was no email. <laughs> You'd go and there was no email today. Well, it'd be like, it would be like, it's suddenly like, because for the first part of your life, you know, you talked about your interest in cars and like, think about how cool it would be if you were a little kid. Like if you ever got to go to a car, sh- car show or like, you know, sometimes at our mall, they would have like car shows and it was, it's fun to go and sit in a car, but that's, that's kind of what you were doing in some ways with your computer. It's somewhat analogous, but then the internet, it's like, you get to take that car on the road. And in your case, you got to drive pretty fast and go wherever you wanted to. And now you go back home, you go to your folks' place and you're kind of just sitting in the car again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and all your friends were in the same situation. Like they, you, it wasn't, it wasn't a given that your friends, when they went home, would have an email address at all. And if they did, they, they might not be able to check their BU mail from home. Like they might not either have the computer savvy to do that, or it might not be possible with their ISP, depending on what kind of account they had or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, you know, and so you just, it wasn't assumed that you could email them at all. And so we would just, you know, it, it got better. Obviously, at the end of the four years, you know, when when you know the internet started to become more of a thing. But in the beginning, it was it was very strange. But the the, the reason I said my timing was so good in that is that I felt like I was in on the ground floor, especially on the web stuff. Mm-hmm. All the people I worked w- uh, with at my first job and all the sort of side jobs I did uh, during college and everything, we were all figuring out web for the first time. Like there was no expert in HTML. It was just us, right? We were all figuring out exactly at that time. And CSS came along. Hmm. We all read it together, did it together. Like, that's why we all got jobs, because, like, as you said, if you know what a BR tag is, you're hired. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody knew anything. And so, it, it, you know, I felt bad even even as I got my first job out of college. I felt bad for the kids coming in now because it's like, well, we know so much more than them. They have to catch up with us before they can. You know what I mean? So you, you were, you know, I mean, not to belabor the obvious, but by the time you were finished by 1996, you were pretty comfortable doing CGI and Perl scripts. Yeah, ninety-seven. Well, I I had I'd done everything I could possibly get my hands on. I'd written, you know, programs in C and in servers and clients. You could make something and drop it in CGI bin, and it would work. Oh yeah, no, that was the, yeah. But like the, the whole idea was that was like the the implementation detail. Like we had to learn that as a matter of course because what we were interested in is what can you do with a web page? Can I make like a little game out of it? Can I, mm-hmm. you know, do I can obviously you could do email forms and boring things like that, but can right. I can I make a, a a bulletin board? Yeah, right, right, right. All the sorts of things and that was just a means to the end. And of course when we got, you know, hired for our jobs that they would have us do whatever we were going to do for the job. So like we had learned all that by messing around with our own homepage. Well, no, at that stuff. point it really was like hypercard. I mean, obviously with the the Similarity being, I mean, I, I imagine you played with HyperCard when it arrived on your computer. Like, I found it completely immersive. At a time, <laughs> this would echo further in my life when I tried to write a book years later. But, you know, right at a time when I really need to be thinking a lot about schoolwork, all I wanted to do was organize my books in HyperCard and come up with these little databases that, that, that I could make. But, you know, and, and really, again, like, here's another funny thing that, I don't know, I, I feel like it's a secret shame of a lot of us. Maybe not you, because you were more conversant in this stuff. But... um Every pretty much everybody I knew, well, you've heard me probably say this before, but a bunch of my friends from college, we all did liberal arts. Obviously, it was a liberal arts school. We came out with you know English English you know majors or you know whatever kind of fruity liberal arts majors. So many of my friends within three years, the ones that didn't go to grad school or didn't go to law school, were all in interaction. They were all in mostly like doing CD-ROMs, writing for things like CD-ROMs. Um, 
doing development on, st on, the, on the early web or just kind of getting their feet wet initially with computer programming. That's what people were doing by like 1994 in a way I never could have predicted. We all liked using PageMaker when we were in college. We all really liked, you know, uh, using Double Helix or whatever to make a database. Like we loved all of that stuff. But then like once we got out in the world, it was so strange. I thought we were all going to become professors, but that's what drew us in. And for, for those of us that were not the CD-ROM people, and then there was those poor bastards in Tallahassee that all did all the Philips CDI stuff that was popular for a month. Um, but in my case, here's how I learned how to make web pages. You go to a web page, you go to view source, you copy the contents of the page, you paste it into BB Edit or whatever it was at that time. I think it was was it was it was hot dog on windows what, what was the big early hot, uh hot metal hot maybe hot metal but i'm, I'm trying to remember what the early mac one was i feel like i've, I've been using bbs bbs since about 1996 or something like that um but whatever it was when i first started you know dicking around with that that's what you did you copied the contents of a web page you pasted it in and you kept changing stuff until it looked the way you wanted and then, and you know what I mean? And then you could look at a book and go like, oh, I understand this is a B tag, this is an I tag. This is why this is happening. Oh, you didn't close your tag way up on the page and that's why everything's underlined. But it was that weird kind of experiment and reload method that that's how everybody I knew learned how to do it. And you could get good at it fast enough, but we all started basically by plagiarizing, not plagiarizing, but you know what I mean? Borrowing the work of other people. It was entirely bootstrapped, bootstrap culture from looking at other people's things because everything was visible. Because otherwise, what are you going to do? Are you going to type? And, and you know, you could get maybe something that came with a with a not even a CD back then. You could get a book that came with a disc. But let's let's really go back. Be honest. <laughs> the easiest way to do that was to start with somebody else's page, change it to be kind of what you wanted. Do things like you know, add your little pencil horizontal rule here or your flashing under construction sign, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it was it was really funny. It was it was nice to be there at a time when. You know, somebody who, again, like I'll, I'll always be be straight up with you and say, like, I, I'm not a technology guy. I'm a guy who likes to make stuff. And it just happened that technology was how I did that. But, you know, it's just weird to think that that kind of whacking around on somebody else's HTML was launched a career in some ways that I never could have expected. It was it was weird to be there for that. <laughs> This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Need. Need is a curated retailer and lifestyle publication for men. Each month, Need curates and sells a limited selection of products, clothing, literature, furniture, and otherwise, for the discerning gentleman. Rather than offering an innumerable selection, Need sells only 10 to 15 exclusive products per month, while also offering an ongoing array of essentials. Need just launched its latest volume, featuring clothing, accessories, and literature ideally suited for the summer months. There are no subscriptions, services, boxes, stylists, or other gimmicks. Instead, you just come along to Need once a month, see if there's anything you'd like, choose to buy, leave, or just read. For listeners of Reconcilable Differences, Need is offering 20% off anything on the site with the code HUGEWEEK. It's HUGEWEEK, one word. This code will also work at Need's sibling site, Foremost, where they produce small-batch, American-made clothing for men and women. So please, support our friend Matt, who writes very difficult ad copy, by visiting neededition.com or foremostedition.com and redeem with the code HUGEWEEK during checkout. And listen, feel free to harass the live chat, as for some reason, Matt uh, still manages it day to day. He loves podcast listeners. And uh, I would suggest you uh, just call him up and ask him to say, offering an innumerable selection. Our thanks to Need for supporting Reconcilable Differences. You will be a very handsome man. It was uh, kind of a fake out. Like, you know, you talked about how you feel like you're a fraud because it's like, you know, I understand BR tech, so hire me to be your expert. But it's right. like... 
if other people it's mysterious to other people because they couldn't be bothered to learn it so as far as they're concerned it is magic in even in more of a way than like i don't know how to use page maker because everybody thinks they know what things should look like laid out on a page but html was so alien like it wasn't they didn't even have a frame of reference for a web browser or things on the web especially when it started looking less like a page thing right well initially it really was it was you've got sgml plus some stuff like this is pretty basic, you know. It's as you say. I, I guess I'd kind of forgotten how simple, it, how really simple it was at first. Where it really it, it wasn't that much different from links. Like you could have a textured background at some point. Like when did backgrounds come along? Was that? Yeah, they were in Netscape, I think. It wasn't in um, Mosaic, though. I don't though? think they were in Mosaic. Mosaic, I, I remember that was one of the other you know, impressive things about Netscape is Mosaic. The background was always gray, at least mm-hmm. in the, the Unix version. Right, right, like right. that. You know, just because that was the color of the background of the window. Yes. And then in Netscape, you could do BG color equals you know hash yep. f f f f, and yep. then all of a sudden the background was white. white it's like, yeah. ah, especially as a Mac user, you're like, ah, oh, finally. Yeah, and finally. Like, I'm putting I'm putting that in all my pages. It's BG color right in the body tag by default, right? This, this, this might be my. Um, my Ray Charles biopic made up thing here. But like, I feel like for me, the way you described loading up Netscape and going like, oh my God, here's these images of these five things and it looks like the face of a die. Um, and this might've been later. I might be misremembering this, but for me, the big jump, like I really felt like the web had gone to another level when CNET introduced that yellow. Mm-hmm. I remember that page. The, so the <laughs> first the first time I remember, like, I think it was on CNET. And we all called it the CNET look, which was, you take a background image that is yellow for probably 120 pixels, maybe have a little bit of a gradation, and then it's, I think, white uh, for the rest of the page to too much bigger than it would ever be, and make that a repeating you know, image on your, on your background. And then, and then, you use a table with a fixed width uh, column, and suddenly you have left navigation on the page. Do, do you remember yeah. the first time you saw that? I remember that exact CNET page. I remember the, that, that coming up and me going, wait a minute, how... How in the hell did they do this? There's no, this can't be real because there was like three things about that that seemed magical. Yeah, image maps, uh, the rollover things, slice, taking your image and slicing it up into pieces so you could put the pieces in tables with no cell spacing between them to fake it. Like it that, was... that's where that's where I was a Viking. Me and Image Ready made a lot of those back in the day. I was really good at that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, I remember image ready for doing that, but like doing it by hand was like the you know do it the old fashioned way. Image ready, like image maps. I'm gonna the exact coordinates had to be in the right place. <laughs> yeah, by by I'll write the image maps by hand. I'll just eyeball it and keep adjusting the numbers until it's correct. Yeah, right. That was that was not a good time for web design, but yeah, we were just figuring out what was possible, and uh, there was especially with the Netscape stuff, like with the HTML stuff being in academia, I was i don't know if i was led to or found my way to very quickly the w3c.org website where all the, mm-hmm. the specs were right and i would just read those i wouldn't buy a book on html or css i would read the css spec read the html spec because it was like uh, and it was like a man page in the sense of like here's all the attributes like here's all the things you could conceivably do with that there was philosophy in there as well but like it was just like go and read because that was that's the academic thing to do like it mm-hmm. was you know it, it felt like especially when you're in massachusetts and the mit people and uh, you know x window system being mit and w3 uh c is over on the other side of the river as well like it was just that's what you do in academia. Like you, you just read the spec, right? But then Netscape is like, there's no spec for this. They're doing like the marquee tag and they're doing, you know, background <laughs> images, doing whatever the hell they want. And right. like, there's no spec for that. And so that was the wild west. And that was like, let's race to get ahead. Like what can you do with these amazing new Netscape features? And they're crazy a lot. Oh, the stuff you, the stuff that you could do with forms. There was even before JavaScript though. I mean, like there were so many little kind of tricky things you could do where you would use 
this is so like embarrassing now, but using form elements to make, you know, various kinds of janky navigation and, and all this, just this tricky stuff you could do with anchors and like make a page that was barely different from the one you were on to make it almost seem like an animation. There was like so much, I would try everything. And my entire approach was totally cowboy. I would just keep reloading it until it looked okay. And then, you know, maybe call a friend of mine on Windows to see if it even worked at all. And thinking of all these internet things, like, so, you know, dividing my life so cleanly between non-internet connected life and then college being the internet connected future and being there, like, at the beginning of, you know, of the the internet as we now know it, how did that change, did that change things socially for me? That's that's exactly the question I was going to ask. So... I definitely did communicate with more people and a broader range of people because I could do it by typing, which was a much more comfort. Like for me, I, I was always comfortable writing in school. I didn't have a problem writing papers. I was, I always liked doing that. Um, so now given the opportunity to have text be my interface with people instead of face to face freed me from a lot of the, the worst aspects of my face-to-face interactions, not all of them, but a lot of them hmm. get over, you know, getting over the, you know, the, the, the nervousness, the, the whole things having to do with both appearance and hygiene. You know, we could all be, no one knows your dog on the internet. No one knows you haven't showered in five days and you're in the computer lab, right? You could be eloquent in your Usenet post. So I think I did communicate with more people in that way. It in and of itself, I don't think it, helped me socially until the groups that communicated on the internet this is the the prototypical version of what happens all the time now the groups that communicated on the internet with each other smaller circles like the people those of us who use the university bulletin board where you just post a message then other people could see your messages uh like an old style bulletin board it was a small group of people who use that maybe 20 or 30 people and all of us realized in this school of 30,000 people, we were the only 20 or 30 people using this particular means to communicate with each other. The more daring and social people in the group would arrange for actual social meetings of <laughs> in real life of the people who participated in the university bulletin board. And, you know, that would get me to show up. And some of the people who participated in that it were, were you know just regular normal people and some of the people looked exactly like what you would think the uh basement dwelling nerds look like and i was you can decide which side of the spectrum i was more towards there but <laughs> that was forcing us to come together in real life based on connections made online which the now is just that we just call that life now and you know right when you you know find i mean you did it like when you did that big meetup with all the other people who were blogging right going across the country to all the other like that's that's the larger scale version but this was just like within college how did you the largest group of friends and people i hung out with or people i met quote unquote online on you know within the university and and seeing everyone come together it really was like a range of people like these people would never have been friends or met each other if if text had not been their only way to communicate oh, for, for was, so many varieties of reasons yeah, it was such a wide range. Of- and there's a big, there's a big gap. There's a bigger hurdle to those folks ever wanting or choosing to interact with other people. Um, let alone like how disparate. You know, you get your misfits of science group together. You know, kind of by accident. That's it's it's fortunate that that that's there. But it's also, I don't know. It's just weird. Again, it always feels so dicey, risky that it worked out at all. You know what I mean? But did did you start to feel more comfortable once you well, were able to interact? <laughs> Not yet. 
<laughs> so it's kind of it's fortuitous that this happened again at the, just the dawning of the internet because these days what happens is it's more like kind of your experience with bloggers is you get to know a bunch of people online and then you realize if you were to put you, everyone on the map you're all over the country or all over the world right whereas and that, it's like okay well now we all know each other and now it takes a serious effort for everyone to go to all the same state and all the same convention and actually see each other and you're not gonna you know it's not gonna be a social circle that you go to movies with on a regular basis because you're all over the place right but at BU, because it was the dawning of the internet, and yeah, I did talk to people on all the, you know, uh, rec art, Star Wars, or whatever, you know, like all the Usenet groups that I was participating in, but it, you weren't going to get together with those people. Within BU, just on the on the University of Bowling Support, you knew all these people were, were on, you know, all these people were students at BU. Mm -hmm. They were, they were in a, within a place where you could all walk to see each other right now if you were so inclined, right? And... I don't know if there's a forum for that type of close connection now because the internet is now just like you're just running into people, I guess still right. at universities and stuff. But because that particular group was people who actually could see each other, it did force more social interaction, you know, in, in you know, in, in a group setting where you could actually show up. It wasn't a Herculean effort. And, you know, right. inevitably that, that group of 30 or 40 people splinters into smaller groups based on who wants to be friends with who that's and a, stuff that's, like that. That's a really interesting point. Like, I got on the uh, internet such as it was after things like BitNet had already been, I guess, integrated into the larger internet. But it's it's interesting to think of uh, the or like the you know the precedence to the world wide web and to the international you know <laughs> global internet uh, being these more localized little assemblies that were kind of more community based. Where I mean, wasn't there? I'm, maybe I'm using BitNet wrong but wasn't there a time when you could mostly get to the people at your college right what like or wasn't there a time when like there was much more you could be you could have the kind of equivalent ex experience of what you're describing with having a wired internet connection but you'd only be able to get as far as this this little area but it was more like like, like your university for example it, it was like the forming of the earth where the ocean <laughs> pangea the actually formed but no not like uh, this is a bad analogy forming of a, 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 a hypothetical planet where it's mostly ocean and there's little there's little islands of land mm -hmm. and the islands of land like everything's connected by the same ocean in theory you can get in a boat from any one of those islands and sail to another island but there's a lot of ocean in between so that was the internet in the early days where these little islands would pop up most a lot of the islands were universities because you know that was the largest concentration of people who had internet connections, right? And they were their own little islands, and they would you could communicate very readily with everyone on your island, and you could communicate with people on other islands too. But the straw was smaller. Like how would how would you communicate or interact with them? At this point, there weren't even web bulletin boards. There was Usenet. Like how would you was, how would you even know how to contact them? Right. Like everyone didn't have a homepage. Very few people had homepages. Right. You'd still need the equivalent of of a phone book to know who you could contact through their handle. Yeah, there was no there was no Tumblers, there was no uh, web forum where you could all go and hang out, and like I mean, there was Usenet, but Usenet was like worldwide and faceless and full of flame wars and not as personable, and like you could email back and forth to them, and so I think in that situation there was lots of interaction on the little islands. Eventually, those islands like raised up, and uh, you know now we're at the point now where like the ocean has disappeared, everything is connected to everything, and everything is all the same, and there are places where everybody can go, and everyone can see everything on Facebook, and it's just like there is. There are no barriers between anything. But when we were all little isolated islands with the huge ocean between us, it felt like, yeah, you're going to do computer... Like, everyone was looking at each other's homepages in BU, but I did not find myself looking at anybody's homepage at, like, you know, universities in California or anything. You know what I mean? Like, we were all mm -hmm. looking at each other's stuff, and we'd all communicate... And we'd, then we'd go over to Usenet and talk about things with everybody worldwide, but then we'd go back to 
tweaking each other's home pages and it took a while for there had to be some place for us to all to go right mm-hmm. like yahoo kind of getting your page listed on yahoo then oh, other people could so find huge. it like getting my youtube lyric site listed in the youtube section of, of yahoo right now the world is going to find my site that like the ocean started to the land rose up and the ocean started to get smaller and smaller until it was just one it's still you know there you go it's coruscant one big giant city planet and that's where we are now but in the beginning those little islands forced interaction like like the galapagos of just just within those little islands and if i didn't have that experience i don't know if i would have just been just as lost or done the thing where you make lots of connections of people who are very far away that you're never going to really see in person well yeah that's that's kind of what i'm trying to get at i guess is that we were fortunate maybe in that sense where like the world got suddenly got bigger but it wasn't impossibly big there, there still was a sense of like that there was there were some this sounds so corny but like that there were the, that there were people that that you could potentially know for some reason I keep thinking about like uh, the way I feel like with my kids school like the thing that no parent or grown-up ever wants to admit is that they like their kids way better than other kids like I like kids I like the idea of kids I really like my kid but I also I do like my kids school and I like my kids friends and I like participating in that would I go as a 48 year old man and go volunteer randomly at a school somewhere no, I'm not. I'm not actually in that into it at this point. I'm not against it. I ain't against it. But do you know what I'm saying? Like the fact that I've got some skin in the game with having a kid at that school has me heavily engaged. Like I really want that to turn out great. I don't know if that makes sense as an analogy. But like when you think about you're going to be contacting people who are from your caress in a Kurt Vonnegut kind of way, or your your <laughs> grandfaloon, I guess. But you're going to be like interacting with people who you know are real people who are like from your area. And so even though the world has gotten bigger, it's still like a knowable world. Even if you're on an island in a big ocean, like that's still an island that you could walk across in a day. I think it really also helped that I felt mastery of this new world. Like that, <laughs> right. I, that, that, that it was not an, un, it, I wasn't dropped into this world of, uh, of strange rules and protocols and like that, that we were, we were the ones making it. We were, it could be whatever we made of it. And feeling mastery of it even amongst the people who were all communicating with each other because not everybody who was communicating this way was as heavily into like you know writing their own little servers in c and their own little client applications doing all that stuff right Mm -hmm. that that it was a world of our own making and as the whole you know crazy utopian like we will make a great new world and it will be better you know whatever like you know kind of whole whole earth review kind of like this can't help but make everything better yeah and you're idealistic and you think like this is going to be different than all the other things and blah. like i was still in school i hadn't gotten out into the working world and the, the web hadn't become what the web is today or whatever but that that really helped make it feel like a like a safe place to do things in a way that I'm sure it totally doesn't now. Like if, mm-hmm. if anything, it's just, you know, very unsafe and scary, uh, you know, where you just try to hide and be anonymous. Whereas back then it was like, mm-hmm. there was, I mean, for, for, if there are younger people listening to this, <laughs> Telnet, we keep, we keep mentioning Telnet. Telnet was a way to connect to a computer and, you know, send characters back and forth. Like you were, you were pretending that your your computer was a terminal and it was like a serial IO send and receive in, in a character stream. And you had send special characters that would do things like move the cursor around the screen and stuff like that. But it was just serial IO, right? Telnet was 100% totally unencrypted. Anything you typed went across the wire as wow. like ASCII or whatever you were typing. You typed your password and it went streaming across as a series of bytes in completely plain text. This is the way we connected to every single computer. Plain text passwords were everywhere. And like, you know, SSH, what is that? Never even heard of it, right? This was the internet back then. All the TTYs were well writable. It'd be you when I arrived. Uh, wait, wait, <laughs> say all that again. 
all all the the terminal devices were okay. world writable. Like so, when you log in, you're 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 kidding. with seven 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 everywhere. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. The, the term the actual device that you're typing on. You log in, you get you know dev tty or pts one three five or whatever. That's your terminal device. Right. If you just did, you know, cat giant picture of ASCII snail arrow dev pts four five six, it would send the giant ASCII snail to that person's screen immediately. Oh wow. Yeah. Tell all our passwords were being sent in plain text everywhere, like, and all the TTYs were writable. <laughs> these are that's these inc- are situations. Wait a minute, that's that's like double crazy. Yeah, this would. I mean, I mean, what what had happened if you wrote to someone's terminal? Well, nothing. That you filled their screen with ASCII junk, right? Um, if you knew VT100 codes, you could fill their screen with ASCII animations because you could, you know, send the clear character and the new line character and make like ASCII things that moved around and annoy them and everything. And if you knew a little bit more and they were actually on a real live VT220 or something, you could send the, the code that would disconnect them. Wow. With the keystroke, if you saw someone on a VT220 and you figure out what terminal they're on, you go boop. And then you watch their face as they, as all their work disappears and they're immediately logged off. All right. This was the the wild hippy dippy west where no one worried about security. It was academia. The internet was in a, just just at the very end of the. So it was more like a library, like it was assumed to be an open yeah. thing. And good intent was assumed, right? Yeah, yeah security absolutely. was yeah. not a concern. Everything was open to everybody. It was all the honor system. You were bound by, uh, you know, the rules of decorum and civilization, and not by encryption and not by changing permissions. I, I'm pretty sure that it was either halfway through my first year or definitely by my second year, all the TTYs at BU were not world writable anymore <laughs> because of jerks like me. And, because, you know, like, and that's how you interacted. You made friends. You sent, you sent a giant snail. It's untenable. I mean, like you just think, and, and the plain text passwords, like forget it. Just like if you were just to watch the traffic going by at BU, you would see everybody's password just flying by in plain text all the time. It was just- wow. That was the internet for the very last gasps of that internet, which I'm sure that internet was like from the 60s or whenever, you know, right. when it was an academic. But eventually it became the internet of people. And we are the people that I guess ruined it for everybody by saying, are you kidding me? If you give us this big social network and it's worldwide, even just <laughs> campus wide, we are going to grief each other. We are going to hack each other. We are going to just do the worst possible because, you know. And then everyone gets locks on all their doors and everything has to be SSH and talent starts going away. And John ruins it for everyone. Well, we all did. We all yeah. ruined it together. Like that's, you know, that, that's the dawning of the internet. But just to be able to. No, we all did. But like, like when you could first figure out how to spoof like a return address. Yeah, no, exactly. Telling the port 25, doing, doing SMTP by hand, fake mailing people. It, it all looked real. You could just say you were Bill Gates. Yeah. Although, yeah. They, although they never did fix that in email. And to this day. I don't want to talk to my parents in the show to say bad things about them. Yeah. To this day, frequently my my mother will say, I got an email from you that said, blah, blah, blah. Did you send this? Oh, God, the, the conversation, the conversation where I have to explain, like, first of all, like, why you've gotten emails from me that aren't from me. Yep, yep. Why you get emails from you that aren't mm-hmm. you. Have you ever gotten an email from yourself? That was a big yeah. one a few years ago. Yeah. And you just have to explain, like, you know, like my cousin, oh, my cousin, his AOL address that he still keeps using, and he he must have a Pencil 69 password. Because like suddenly there'll just be this burst of activity on his account. Like I won't hear from him for months, and then suddenly there'll be this giant burst of activity where clearly that's what they're going to exploit for a while. He never fixes he never fixes it, and it's it's just it's so weird to have these people live 
in this place where like, who knows? I mean, who knows how many of us have been hacked and don't know it, right? Because apparently that's the thing now is like people will sit on the fact that they've hacked you for a long time. But I don't sound like I'm immune to that. But like to continue living your life on a zombie PC <laughs> must be so weird. And the email thing though, like that's the fact that it's gone on so long. Like I, I remember the first time I came home from school and this topic came up, I demonstrated to my mother how I can send email apparently from anybody using the tele command, right? right? Right, right. I could send it from, you. yeah, I said, name an email address. I will give you an email that appears to be from that address. And that demonstration has not stuck. The idea that there is absolutely, you know, because like intellectually, I think people understand it, but they say, but the email was from blah. Like the email was from nobody. The email was from what anybody felt like typing. And you know, like you want to go into the nuances, like tracing it back and figuring out what servers it came from, what gateway it went through to authenticate it or whatever. But it doesn't matter. Like so what shows up in the from line in my email, right? And it's like she, she's not thinking that way. She's thinking about her sitting there and how she sends email. That's that's the problem with all of this. These thought technologies is somebody sitting down going like, well, I would never do that. Like just for somebody to be able to do that, like that that's wrong. Like that doesn't. How could that even work? Yeah, and the the problem is the mental model of email is people communicating. People, there's a name, uh, there's a as na- a person attached to a name and a name attached to an email address, and we communicate to each other in this way, and that's not what it is entirely. So of all of all the parts of the internet that we got, you know, Telnet is gone, FTP hopefully is gone, or at least <laughs> using SFTP where you know right, anything right, with right. plain text passwords is gone world writability is more or less gone uh but uh email is still completely unauthenticated that's totally bizarre well we should start um probably winding down for this first one uh i got a lot i got a lot to cover in the next one is there anything else you be, be, i don't know what we've done here what have we done here today i uh, covered a lot of ground I, we covered more than i expected well we op- we opened up a lot of doors there's a lot of places uh, avenues that we can go down yeah are, are you less worried now uh no same amount good okay uh we're gonna talk about my problem with video games we'll talk about military school uh printing man pages um music oh yeah right i I don't know how you're gonna talk how how do you want to frame that is like what what what's up with all the music what (laughs) it's a good episode i don't know (laughs) uh i may maybe the way into that one is we can talk about the uh extremely uh, prosaic bands that I ended up getting super duper into okay, and c- compare that to the rich tapestry that is your musical life. <laughs> I, how can you... How, what's funny about that? It's, not, it's just... No, it's just like, I mean... All right. Uh, you know, like, write this down in your card. I've written John's prosaic, John's prosaic bands. R- r- write down late bloomer. Because <laughs> that covers a lot. Mm-hmm. That, that, would be, that would definitely be the second volume of my memoirs. No, well, I mean, like for for you know, late bloomer music. Yes, definitely. Okay, all right. Okay, late bloomer video game for me. Late bloomer music for you. Got it. Like got it. Non bloomer video game, or like you are more like what took a break. Uh, uh, you know, late bloomer socially. You know, all yeah. the, lots of lots of late bloomer. But music is is a big. And I think even like late bloomer, like network wise, we just talked about. Like I was, the fact that I networking existed and I could have been like super duper into trying to get a modem but I just wasn't and it didn't happen until 1993 that's a pretty late bloomer in terms of like getting on networking like you right, were on sure, it before sure. I was um, yeah late bloomer and one more thing in late bloomer category programming okay. which is my actual profession and I didn't do it at all in any reason didn't understand it at all until college I tried to do it for my whole childhood but <laughs> you I can you consider that late blooming oh just just in the sense of like given your uh interest like it should have occurred to you earlier to start whacking around no I, yeah, I did I tried to program from the time I was you know uh, on the Vic 20 I just did not get it until much later like like many things in life just didn't like didn't ha- didn't have the intellectual breakthrough and, and you know anyway but yeah 
Okay, got That's, it. I got late bloomer for music, late bloomer for programming. I also have one here um, for next time. Um, John's sense of history. You seem very grounded in. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll work this out in more detail next time. But in uh, in history and your what history, like world history or personal history? What happened before stated the right way and in the right order is very important to you. And you seem things like, um, not to make it too personal, but things like your family, your relationship with your family seems uh, very important to you. And I don't know, you seem to have a profound sense of one thing coming after another thing in a way that a lot of people, even adults, often don't have. Keep in mind that if my wife was on this podcast, she would tell you that I'm getting every single date wrong. I'm so bad with <laughs> dates and like so terrible. Like I can't even remember the date I started college. I am so bad with all da- dates and names are just my incredible weakness so every time uh, you know she listens to my podcast she's like that didn't happen in that year does that happen does she ever listen does she ever listen to or happen to hear your shows yes she does and then she gives me corrections right because i'm just so i'm just so bad with dates my wife has never listened to an entire podcast of anything i've ever done i think i made her listen to some you look nice today's a long time ago but mostly she's thinking about other stuff (laughs) she's doing that smile but occasionally like oh john said this really like like the latest episode of roderick i was like you know john I don't know. John seems to be in kind of like a vulnerable, kind of reflective place lately. And I was like, I, I got to play you this little part. And she's like, Oh yeah, that's really good. And she's like, No, no, that's not what happened. No, okay. or she'll, like she'll hear some little thing out, of, and she'll like come around the corner. And she goes, That's not what happened. No, nobody said that. That's not what happened at the meeting. And I'll be like, Oh god, it's it's excruciating. I mean, I just I feel so fortunate that my wife has no interest in what I do because <laughs> it means that there's less chance that she'll want to do it too. In which case, I would feel really screwed. Yeah, so far she hasn't wanted to do anything else, but she does want to correct me, and I'm just—I really am bad about dates. Like half of the half the chronology is like you know, even if I was told the correct chronology, I've I forgot. Well, how, how do you get it wrong? Like you've heard me say, like I skip a uh, a decade sometimes. When you get it wrong, like do you get it grossly wrong? You get a little wrong, like you get the season wrong. Like how do you feel like you get it wrong when you get a date wrong? I'm I'm like maybe I'm offset by threes and fives of years. Often, like I mean, I just try. I try to hang on to the few dates I can remember, like when I was born, when I graduated high school, right. And then I can add four to that to say when I graduated college. I don't know when my kids were born. I don't know when I got married. This is terrible. I'm really bad with dates, but I, I think I have the rough chronology right, but details get fuzzy, and especially childhood. You remember which like, kid came first, and yeah, things I, like that. I remember the order of computers I own better than like. But I don't remember the years I got them. When you know. When was the when the, was the Mac upgraded to a Plus? Well, it had to be after '86 because that when the Plus came out. But I have no idea what year it was. They could have done '87, '88. I have I would have to like find the receipt in my attic to you know. I you know I'm really bad with dates. Life would life would life would be so much better if we got to choose which kind of mess we get and we are. <laughs> yeah, people. The thing is, for for the purposes of, of this show and any show. People listening have no idea that I'm getting dates wrong. My wife does. So I'm perfectly happy with everyone to accept my history as as I describe it, with the caveat that I don't want everyone ever quoting back to me. But you said on podcast, well, I was like, are you kidding? I said I'm the least reliable source for any, <laughs> any chronology of my life, right? So right. it's not important. Just take it as what I'm saying, and I will just endure having my wife listen to it and tell me all the dates I got wrong, which is fine. Well, stay strong. Yeah. <laughs>